right, so welcome to Movie Food, and we have another special guest, uh, Sir William Scurry of Sussex, the most dapper <laughs> man in podcasting. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing great. I'm a little damp uh, because we are in the middle of a heat wave. I believe it is the first one. I guess technically a heat wave is uh, three days in a row of heat, and so this is um, Central, no, uh, Western Europe's first big heat wave, even though we've had Whoa. some hot days. So yeah, the new the new reality. So, but other than that, I'm great. It's a great place to be. It's a hell of a city up here in Amsterdam and in Holland, uh, chilling in the Ronstad, as it were. And uh, yeah, happy to be talking to you again. It's been a long time. Yes, man, it has been a while. Um, especially on record. Um, I think the last time was on zebras. Yes, uh, which was just before I left New York City. So it's yeah. been that long. We watched the ice rink, right? Was that the yes, one? Yes, yeah. yes, that was it. Um, yeah, and it's great. Uh, we, I've been like hyping you up. You know, you've been kind of the, <laughs> the Harry Lime of this podcast, where I've been like mentioning you. You know, casually dropping. Yeah, he's going to be a guest on this show. You know, and then now it's happened. We caught you. Yeah, except um, yeah, we're doing this live from a, a merry-go-round, and or what is it? It's a a a, 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 a um. Ferris wheel in in, in yes. Austria. That's what we're doing. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the Swiss are known for their cuckoo clocks. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, just before actually we started recording, you were talking about coming back to New York, which I haven't done. Yeah. And you said that you um, recorded this show, which I have my thoughts on. I, I've I've seen um, the piecemeal stuff. I haven't seen the whole thing, but uh, we can discuss it. So tell me about that experience of coming back to New York and recording an evening with James and Bill. Well, there's a, any good reason I come back to New York is to glom on to my friends who I don't get to see between months. But then I also uh, have a nice permanent home set up over at James Hancock's house, uh, either nice. on his podcast or his YouTube channel. So he had to, the time beforehand, I since I moved to Holland in September 2019, I have been back a couple of times, but it was a long drought, essentially no, no fly zone between here and America. And so, you know, we just had to deal with seeing people on, on you know, on Skype and stuff like that. But um, we had a lot of uh, energy pent up after that. And so me and James worked on two projects. September last year, we did uh, Movie Locations in New York City Part 2, um, which we had a lot of fun doing that. And then in the nice. spring, we he came up with this idea of like recreating the Tom Snyder slash Charlie Rose chat fest. Yeah, that's, that's what I got. Like that's, yeah. that's the vibe. A little bit of Siskel and Ebert too. Yeah. With the music. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I look, I love it. I feel flattered because James Hancock um, kind of like asked me if I'll volunteer to do a lot of prototype uh, projects with him. We did the first wrong real live stream uh, nice. on YouTube. We did just, just a couple of weird projects that he, he's asked me to do it. And I, I'm flattered. I don't think I'm nearly as good as he thinks I am. I think that I have the ability to not stop talking. And <laughs> I, I think I can orate, I can hold court on subjects I don't know anything about with, with a, a, a frightening degree of uh, bluffing it, like alacrity, that kind of thing. So, uh, I think you're selling yourself short, Bill. Uh, I mean, the, the thing, I mean, like one of my favorite segments of that show is uh, the new canon. Yes. And you guys are discussing that. And. I mean, that's the amazing thing to me. It it feels like you guys are just speaking spontaneously, like it it, it just flows. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a thing about it where, you know, I feel like with me, I would not be able to do that because I need my notes in front of me. Yeah, <laughs> like well, you guys. I, it, I did yeah. cut out, you know, look, I did the edit on that too. So okay, there was gotcha. a fair amount of condensing. <laughs> I made it, I mean, look, it was what you saw, but the idea is right. like, we. I got to do a nice glamour edit on both of us that took out all the bullshit. Sure. 
Otherwise, okay. I mean, I, I say a lot of nonsense. It's, it's well, preposterous. yeah, that's the thing. I didn't even notice those things because yeah. it was just so natural from, you know, it cutting to you and then cutting to James. And then it would have like the um, what is that effect? The Ken Burns effect on a, yeah. on a movie mm-hmm. poster. So yeah. you just like edited it seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, the idea was to look the whole thing, the whole shebang wound up being, I think, north of 90 minutes. Uh, but it was really designed to be seen in piecemeal. Like you said, the bits and pieces you wanted because, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot of just two guys sitting in suits, uh, drinking whiskey. And it's like your mileage <laughs> your mileage may vary. Uh, sure. I, I could, I could, yeah, I could listen to myself talk all day long. And if you wanted the whole thing, it's there for you. But I think it's really mm-hmm. – uh, bits. it was designed for bits and pieces to play on YouTube. That's really the way you're going to succeed these days. Yeah, and I, I love it because you you did it in piecemeal because uh, it it feels like I'm watching you know a whole season of the show. Like I I didn't even realize you guys just did it. Did you do it all in one session? Like it was one sit down. Uh, it was yeah. Actually, it kind of wound up being in one sit down. Although oh, wow. we, we we sat down for uh, we got this location. It was just up on like twenty second. It was like twenty second. Um, over in Chelsea, it was just gotcha. a dude's. It was a dude's apartment who he has half half of it set up to do uh, sit downs like that. Oh, uh, wow. so, so we rented it for two days, and Kevin Marr, our old friend Kevin Marr, came in and did the direction for us, which that was the most sagacious choice we made. I'm so glad he said yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah it's and, beautifully and, shot. Like I mean, the lighting is just perfect on you guys. Yeah, that it, well, that's the thing. It, it, Jamie is not necessarily um, craft uh, inflected. He sure. knows the vision. And uh, I think I said to him, look, I, what we're asking for is very simple to do this. Um, we don't need a gigantic, we don't need a ton of gaffers. We don't need a gigantic, we just need literally three cameras. We got to do a wide shot and a crossfire. And whatever we come up with is going to be great. We've got two microphones pointed at us. And the atmosphere is just recreating that Gordy Willis thing, you know, the, the sort yeah. of dark, you know, the, the darkness with the light coming from the top. And that was beautiful. You know, once, we, once we nailed that, it was okay. Great shot, Gordy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Steal from so the yeah, best. Yeah. So speaking about like the um, uh, the new canon, uh, I know you mentioned a couple of titles in that segment. And I highly recommend you guys look for it. On YouTube, it's called An Evening with James and Bill. Um, sometimes it helps to actually put your last name to Bill Scurry because some other things pop up for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird yeah. SEO thing. But um, uh, so, yeah, could you give us like another random pick from your canon? I'm just curious. Oh, boy. Yes, I can. Um, mm-hmm. Let me see. I have uh, I, ha- I made a whole document. That's the thing is I went really wide <laughs> with it. I know. Well, that's like when we first started talking about this, uh, it was the idea of like, well, how deep am I going to go? And I mean, Mm -hmm. look, to to go off the page here for a second, I have uh, since the beginning of pandemic, I've been engaged in a nightly uh, routine with a good friend of mine named Matthias Vanderus, who is one of the wrong real regulars. Yes. Um, And he He was on the Soderbergh episode, I believe. Among others, yeah, yeah, he did. Yes, I think yeah. he did a Pasolini or something like that along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so he lives in Utrecht. He's he's a he's a Dutchman, uh, born and bred. And um, we started uh, getting on Skype every night and watching a movie. I would say just as soon as they locked us in together, we started oh, wow. that. So it, it wound up being a film school. That and he's got incredible taste. He's a young man. He's only turned thirty this year, and yet his taste is insane. Mm-hmm. His memory is nearly eidetic. And it's really hard to keep up with it. Like he has this, yeah. this great taste and an accuracy at the same time. So he curated a lot of things I'd never seen, nor did I think I would see. So we did go down a Bunuel rabbit hole, which I'd never seen. I, we did go down Pasolini. And there mm-hmm. were some of these guys that I just did not have a lot of experience with. Um, 
Okay, but I'll, I'll give you I'll give you two right off the top of my head. There's a movie Perfect. came out in 1981, director named Robert M. Young. This is a collaboration with Edward James Almost. A movie called The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. Okay. It is a social western. I can't even tell you. It's almost like you're watching a doc. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen anything like it before, and Robert Young and, and um, EJO go back. Uh, they had a really mm-hmm. good relationship with one another. Uh, but it's unheralded. I mean, I, I, that's the whole point of this. No one's ever heard of these things. It's really fucking right. good. Uh, and here's another one, man. I did not see this movie coming. A British film that was shot, I think it was shot in Cyprus. Uh, director is named James Dearden, 1987. A movie called okay. Pas- Pascali's Island. This was Ooh, a, a okay. tip I got from John Cribbs, of all people, our, uh, our old friend. And this is um, Ben Kingsley plays a guy this is sort of like pre-war the germans are like creeping in there's an archaeological dig with charles dance who plays a, like a, a you know like a museum docent and you know the heat is coming on from the war and people kind of have to pick sides in this this neutral island in like the middle of the mediterranean it's, it's a really romantic tropical sexy looking I mean, ben kingsley when he was young man you just don't see that guy coming it's insane right yeah it's yeah. amazing yeah man oh well thank you for those man yeah i i I always love like hearing something like that i'd never heard before before because you know i i watch a lot of movies myself yeah. Yeah. you know i feel like i'm pretty well read or well viewed i don't know what the, the term is but um but yeah i mean i i am familiar with uh robert m young because there is this movie that was like an hbo staple when i was growing up called um caught which also stars EJO, but I mean, to me, the the highlight of the movie is Maria Conchita Alonso. Uh, highlight uh, of most movies. If she's yes, in it, that's yeah. the highlight of the movie. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's an incredible film. Like, it's set in Jersey City. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's an erotic thriller. That's you what know, e- EJO actually starred in, this is one of those fusions. When I start thinking about great actors I love, mm-hmm. I, the first thing I think of is, did they work with John Sayles? Mm. And EJO did. What was John Sayles' last theatrical movie was Go for Sisters with um, um, Lisa Gay Hamilton. Yeah, okay. and yeah, he plays a retired LAPD detective who is sort of like hired on a basis by this woman who's looking for her kid who was being a dope courier back and forth over the border. And EJO has these like, you know, he's just got a savvy about him because he, he was in the life. And Lisa Gay Hamilton is completely out of her element. But I mean, you, you want to talk about people who should work with... Um, John Sayles, that's like EJO is that guy. Right. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Gay Hamilton working with him, that she's a perfect mm-hmm. actor for the job. You know, that's again, if you have some connection to sales, it probably means that you've done something correct in your career. Right. Yeah. That's wild, man. Cause I always thought that his last movie was Honey Dripper. No. <laughs> that's, well, yeah, that's crazy. Did you watch the Filipino movie that he did, Amigo? Uh, uh, I did not, but my dad did. Uh, I forgot about that one too. Yeah. I watched it a couple. I watched it a couple of times, and the funny thing is, it's like obviously there's this guy named Joel. Um, oh, fuck, I can't remember Torre. his name. Yeah, Joel Torre. Yeah, and and he's he's the actor. I mean, most of the script is in a mixture of Spanish and Tagalog. Uh, oh, and nice. John John. He's you know he he's a fluent uh, Spanish speaker, and so you know like, yeah. it was easy for him to not. But it's like you have a non. Not just that. It's like a fucking Tagalog script. Or the, the lead speaker is a t- in a Western movie is Tagalog speaker. It's like, when has that ever happened? <laughs> yeah. And I know he, because my dad has it on his bookshelf. There's, there's a novel of it as well, uh, right? That he wrote. Yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah, so. it's, yeah it's, I think it was kind of like based on a lot of, even though the story wasn't exactly real, mm-hmm. but it was based on all, all sorts of truth. Fantastic. Yeah, I got to check it out. I, I mean, I've, I've been gradually catching up with sales. I know he's your boy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I saw um, City of Sadness or is it City of Hope? 
City of Hope. Hope. That's, yeah, yeah, City of Hope. Sh- shot by Robert uh, Richardson. It looks like it, too. You get every dollar of that uh, thing there. Right? Absolutely, man. Um, and then um, I think uh, the last movie of his that I saw, um, it was actually a rewatch because I remember seeing it when it first came out and then forgetting about it for some reason. Uh, <laughs> is, like, that, is that your period of watching six movies a day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know you know exactly what it is. Yeah, so um, it was that time, 99. <laughs> uh-huh. Can you guess which movie that was? Oh, was it um, Limbo? Yes, correct. Yeah, a, yeah it was one. Limbo. Really yeah, yeah. And I, I, I forgot the ending. And oh, that's yeah. like the key part. <laughs> like, <laughs> and we won't spoil it for, for other people, but see Limbo. Like the ending is man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's an incredible film. And, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of um, Mary Elizabeth and Master Antonio. So, yeah. you know, I also just saw um, like... Uh, um, color of money for the first time recently oh dude yeah. yeah i did i did that for the first time like four years I, it's it's ridiculous but four four years ago i did it for the first time it takes yeah it takes your breath away yeah absolutely amazing movie i mean i i was it was one of those things where i was just like man i, I i'm now reevaluating marty's 80s you know oh, um yeah yeah. yeah 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 like i think just every single film in that decade i've enjoyed you know um mm-hmm. I I don't know I if I have any gaps, but when yeah. I came out of that one, uh, I think I had watched it was this is I was still in New York um, at the at the time, but I think me and my friend Nick Nadell went to go see uh, Last Temptation. They screened it mm. at uh, Alamo in, in in Brooklyn, and then um, just a couple of weeks after that, I said, oh, "I really got to I, I really got to burn off Color of Money." I don't like yeah. Color of Money better. It's it you know there's just less less baggage. It's more free flowing. It's like a yes. comic book almost. But um, the the thing I always remember about Color of Money, I would say almost more so than any other movie, perhaps with the exception of um, Raging Bull, is that Color of Money looked like it was made in the edit room. You know, in yes. a way that in the way that other Marty movies don't. I mean, they're shot in a certain way, but it was changed and redefined in the in the, in the editing suite. And just, Absolutely. You know, that, I mean, I'm saying that's to its credit. It really does become a th- you know the third time you make the movie, the writing, the shooting, that you truly made it on the cutting phase of that yes. one. Yes. Yeah, and uh, well, let's definitely bookmark that because that may bring up uh, that may come uh, up again later on okay. in the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I didn't even put in like because we have certain sections in our podcast, and I guess oh, we've yeah. already launched into the the quick cut section of the yeah. podcast. And put uh, the Steve, sting in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's where Steve puts it <laughs> in. Put it all right. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is one of the main reasons, Bill, why I wanted you on the show, because I didn't want this podcast to just be like, I mean, obviously friends. I love having friends over, but I feel like you and I in taste wise are kind of on not quite opposites, but like definitely we, we clash a bit, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which sure. I want. I, I don't want a podcast where everybody just agrees and says like, oh, this is great, you know, Um and uh, the thing is, like, again, I brought up earlier that I watched so many movies that I think we, we definitely overlap on certain things as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I, I definitely agree with you with sales. I think uh, you mentioned on your um, evening with, with James and Bill, um, you're a fan of Melville as well. And Melville yeah. is, is very important to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I in a previous life, when I had a previous podcast, the first time I even met you, I think. Was you were a guest <laughs> on my podcast right, for yeah. for a Robert Brisson movie, which is I think still online. Like, because uh, it was I think one of the last episodes. Because it's this weird thing with SoundCloud where if you stop paying for it, like they they cover up your older episodes and it's whatever you have that's most recent. Oh so yeah, it, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So that episode is still online for uh, Four Nights of a Dreamer, and I know you really 
uh, you seem to hate Brisson with a passion. Uh, it's funny. I've never gone back. I don't think I've watched another Brisson movie after that. Uh, okay. But it, not because of that. I mean, in fact, mm-hmm. I would say in my mode now, we're, we're doing me and me and Matthias van der Rooster doing film school every night. We're doing N- Netherlands film school. I could gotcha. I could definitely see, you know, watching Ohazar Baltazar or one of those for the first time. I wouldn't I wouldn't shut it out. I just maybe that movie didn't really work for me. Um, have you seen Pickpocket? No, I had, that's the only one I saw was was the Four Nights of the Dream. Oh wow! Okay, so I ruined it for you, <laughs> wow. like as your first entry. Um, now I would highly recommend Pickpocket. That was the first yeah. Brisson I ever saw, and just kind of a weird related thing to you again with the Melville, and then also when we were both on um, yeah, strike that we the ice rink wasn't actually the last time we were on a podcast together. Was it we, uh, we did Mike Lee, right? Yeah, we did naked, um, yeah. but we weren't naked. I I, I don't think uh, <laughs> um, on wrong reel. Yeah, we yeah. did the naked episode. Um, That's true. I was sitting in the room with Jamie, and we piped you in from LA. That is true. Yes, yes, yeah, that was a great show. And um, yeah, so I actually watched all three. You know, during that time when I was watching six movies a day, yeah, um, yeah. I watched <laughs> Pickpocket, Le Samurai, and Naked back to back to back mm-hmm. um, uh, on the morning of uh, the dusk of my, uh, or no, sorry, the dawn of my twenty-first birthday. It was how I wow. I rang my birthday in. So I, yeah. you know, those three films have just like you know, um, uh, have been very formative to me and they still continue to be important. And it's like, uh, I, th- I think I mentioned that on the Naked episode that it's like an annual tradition for me to watch them like once but a year. You, you can't pick three more dissimilar films though, you know? Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was my programming style was like, I, I realized that because I was doing, you know, when I first started, you know, it was basically a film festival a night. But I would do like series of directors, you know, because, you know, you, you wanted to like go through their body of work. But that got exhausting after a while. You know, it was just like, man, it's the same thing, you know, especially when it's an auteur who has like a very recognizable style. You're just like, you know what to expect. So I realized now I got to I got to vary it up. It's got to be different directors, maybe even different genres, you know, to kind of. Um, you know, uh, shake things up and even like pace, maybe like, you know, one movie might be like a slow, you know, a long take film. Another one will be like kind of an ADD hyper MTV cut up movie, you know, and that's what works for me. And I actually, I still continue to do that. You know, I, I like yeah. to vary it up. I'm just like thinking now. I'm trying to curate Michael Bay's ambulance with uh, Tuki Buki and uh, the Ivan's Childhood or some perfect some weird night like that. Perfect right? film festival night. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny though because like you know all my favorite movies of the year so far have been um, like spectacles and ambulance is up there. Like they're all. I, I have just, not like, seen it. I have not seen. Oh, it. oh, I loved it, Bill. Like, um, yeah, I mean, it's a nice welcome back to Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. You know, after doing that Transformers bullshit. Like, yeah. I'm so glad he's back. Uh, uh, but yeah, most of my favorite movies. Uh, have you seen Triple R? The, no, the you know what? I, I've been dancing around that because, you mm-hmm. know, my, my, my own pop culture that I do with my friend Noah. Uh, yes. He's just, he's, he's just north of you in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, I think we fucked it up, though, because I think the R R moment was maybe about uh, four, four or five weeks ago. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, if it's still evergreen, which it's kind of not, but it's it's mm-hmm. had legs, I consider. But so I held off on watching it because I wanted to, like, maybe use it for our pop culture podcast. Yes. And, no, that, that would be great. I, I think know. people are still gradually coming around to it, especially I, now that we're halfway through the year. Some people are doing, like, their uh, best of the year so far lists and right. people are discovering it. 
the the one thing though about the the version that's on Netflix is it's okay. not the original language. It's not Telugu. It's Hindi. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah a it's bummer, Hindi. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I saw it in the theater in Telugu, and it was yeah, it's one of the best times I've had in the movie theater. Twice I went to see right. it twice, so um, yeah. But there's also a part of me, you know, like this is another part where I think we overlap a little bit. Is that you know I love your podcast, uh, which we haven't even mentioned by name, called yeah. <laughs> I Don't Get It because yes. I can relate. I mean, I fall kind of in between two stools because I don't really feel like a millennial, but I'm also not Gen X. Like I'm somewhere in between, but I, you know, even when I was a young kid, I was always like a curmudgeon. Like I, when I turned 36, like I really felt like, oh man, my mental age finally caught up to my, you know, physical age. You've always (laughs) been 36. Yeah. I've always been 36 years old, you know, and I always will be. I probably, now I'm on arrested development because I'm 37 now. So (laughs) I'm approaching 40. (laughs) I'm getting there to my, uh. What do, what do you guys call it? Like your your version of irrelevance? Oh, well, yeah. Oh. We're careening towards pop culture irrelevance. Yeah, yes, it, exactly. Yeah. Inevitable yeah. march to it, sure. Yeah, inev- that's it. The inevitable march to irrelevance. Yeah. And then that, that's how I feel. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, uh, but but look, yeah, that... we, we have we have this thing right now. It, it's not it doesn't play in our advantage, but mm-hmm. the siloed world like we still regard things as if we're playing inside of this enormous bathtub where all the shit's floating inside of it. Right. But the reality is the silo allows the strangest things to have long life and this longevity and relevance. Uh, you know, it, it also makes it that the biggest pop sensation in the world could be right next to you and you would not see the shadow because of right. the height of the silo. But it also means that you could you have a lot more freedom living in the balkanized world to just enjoy the things you want to enjoy without people getting up on your tits about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, the, the thing about your show, too, that I love is that it's not predictable. Like uh, I, I sometimes I'll. I'll it's a kind of a game I play with myself before listening with, to an episode, whether I, you know, you will get it or Noah will get it. And I'm, yeah. I'm most of the time I'm wrong. Like I was shocked by one of the more recent episodes on Nathan Fielder because I, I thought you would get it. Yeah, no, no, that's the thing. Noah said the same thing. Like we don't yeah. actually, we don't like, uh, we just talk small ball before we start recording because like, sure. it is, we, we kind of want the genuine surprise on the mm-hmm. air. So yeah, I, yeah. I felt the same way too. Wow. Yeah. So have you been watching the rehearsals since then or just that that one episode? No, you know, I, I my TV diet is really like um, bread and water. I, I watch gotcha. so little TV, the episodic stuff, just because I'm like trying to watch a movie or two mm-hmm. a day. Um, right. You know, and it's it's. I know that that's not a lot to ask of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I this is going to be weird, man. I started watching Better Call Saul with six episodes left to go. <laughs> I did that with Breaking Bad too. Like I caught up on the second half of the fifth season. <laughs> like, yeah, I I yeah. started reading the Walking Dead comic at issue one hundred and one. Mm-hmm. And it ended on like 220 or something. So I, I have a weird track record with these things. But I think, you know, the smartest thing was like I un- I understood what was going I watched Breaking Bad. I didn't watch mm-hmm. Saul. And I thought the first the pilot episode of Saul was really awkward and bulky. And I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. like I don't like how this is restarting to get to where we needed to be. And all of a sudden it's like I let it go until the final season. And we did it as an episode of our show a couple of weeks ago. And I just, I knew exactly where it was. I didn't know who the characters were, but I just picked it up in midstream. And I'm like, oh, no, this is exactly what I wanted for the pilot. So I can watch the right. last six episodes. I'm going to get the entire run out of it. I've, I've obviously missed a lot of things, but still. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've tapped into the problem with prequels is that, you know, you know where it's heading. And like we're getting a lot of prequels like Obi-Wan and all these things. And we already know where it's going to go. So why, you know, it's like an inevitability. And then I don't like the retconning of stuff, obviously. That's, you know, one of my main issues. Um, But yeah, like uh, I I, I obviously feel like I want to land on like 1159 of the hour (laughs) just see you know the climax like you could get to that part already and you know that's it i i don't like long build-ups i know that we're um sort of on the eve of this um andor show that's coming on Hmm. on disney plus soon and uh, look i'm I'm guilty as charged because i watched obi-wan and i watched book of uh book of boba fett and i mean i I mean it's it's hard to i don't know i got no skin in the game but it's hard not to watch those things sure and i I just feel like andor as much as i like diego luna and i mean that's got the best cast of any of these things so far you know stellan skarsgård's in it you know it's it goes deep uh on the other hand it's like this is the least essential story ever told the prequel to a prequel Um, (laughs) right but on the other hand it's like i'm seeing disney waited this long to give tony gilroy the keys and they're actually shooting on locations which is something that none of those other shows ever did they're just stuck in you know they're in culver city or wherever the fuck uh yeah you know star wars shoots those things and so yeah you know this could this could be a different animal okay yeah, I mean, it, the good thing is because we're so awash with hot takes and all this shit and media, I can wait. Like, you know, all these things where I can be or unless somebody like I know and respect like tells me like go watch this, you know, I I don't have to rush to to see it. Yeah, no, I I I mean, I agree with you, but that's the thing that I mean, I, the original point was though is that I have I mean, not excluded episodics, but I don't really have enough room in my diet for it. Other mm-hmm. than like, I'm watching um, what we do in the shadows. I keep current on Atlanta. By the way, did you watch Atlanta? Yeah, Atlanta? actually, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I just saw it. So, uh, how do you feel about this this recent season? Well, it's uh, you know what I first got hep to what was going to happen because I rode my bike onto the. Um, the PAs were roadblocking people. And <laughs> okay. so, and it was outside the, you know, the play, the episode where um, Paperboy takes the space cake outside of that coffee yes, shop gray yes. area. That's, I was there that day and I, mm-hmm. I, I was like, what the fuck? I'm like, this is a New York problem where they would wave you off the street. I'm like, don't <laughs> fucking do this to me in Amsterdam. Yeah. And I was like, the, the, I, I was about to mouth off and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the asshole speaking in English, mouthing off to the PAs in right. Dutch. Anyway, so, um, yeah. And then it was like, oh, they're shooting a whole season of he- here, right down the canal belt for me. That's unusual. So we, me, I went, I went back to my wife, who, by the way, is a, a, a strong, strong cannabis shopper okay uh, and i said i said look they are coming here man you're gonna get a whole season to this and it's like you know donald glover and lakeith are right around the corner from us practically and it's just weird that, that like this is a real bump in i didn't expect this to happen oh but when i watched it uh you know i i maybe i expected more from it than i thought i was mm-hmm. gonna get just because it wound up being so much more elliptical so much more short short film anthology quasi uh, you know it's like, and the the like maybe the best episode winds up being Trinity to the Bone, the thing that was shot mm-hmm. out in, in in Queens, which is that was a really transcendent, you know, half hour of TV that was just something sure. else entirely. Yeah, but like I mean, Chet I, Hanks. Yeah, right. Chet. World star. <laughs> You're scaring that white family. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, brilliant! But I uh-huh. I have this I have this thing now, and I I mean I've been hunting down a movie shot here in Amsterdam. 
you know, granted, when I was home, I wasn't terribly familiar with the Dutch film market beyond the obvious hits of maybe like, um, you know, Paul Verhoeven. Right. Uh, and even Paul Verhoeven's movies are shot in any number of cities because usually he's doing, you know, if it was Black Book, you had to kind of create a, a, a wartime tableau and you can't shoot in Amsterdam because there's just not a lot of that stuff left over. Anyway, having been here for as long as I have, I... I'm almost getting competitive with trying to spot locations because this is a pretty small city. I want to know when I see something. So like the Atlanta, the Atlanta crew coming here, I'm like, I want to make sure I know exactly what, and it's really not that hard because they kind of just shot in the same five block radius. But I was like, sure. I prided myself on knowing, you know, where their locations were while they were here. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I'm the same way. Like, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of that movie. Los Angeles plays itself. Which so I downloaded a- just the other day. Cause it popped up on the, place where things pop up if you get what I'm yes absolutely. yeah and I'm, I'm like i've wanted to see that for years and now there's like it's a fantastic. big honk and 1080p copy i can't wait to dig into yeah that. dude uh yeah we, we gotta discuss that maybe that's gonna be another yeah. episode uh we kind oh. of already brought it up slightly uh on an oh, yeah, earlier yeah, yeah. Episode that's why then that's why i got it yeah 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 it's an ongoing uh series that we've been doing and yeah i'm just obsessed with locations when i see something i'm like where was that shot like and <laughs> i love that imdb is more detailed now about locations like it actually tells you the address of the place yeah well that's you yeah. know like that's all that's all it's become a wiki of some sort because it's citizen mm-hmm. yeah by the way let me just say just to brush up i was listening to the commando episode today i, I oh, had nice. it stuck on my I know it's just from June or whatever, but what I love is that when you and Steve get down to it, it it's like uh, there's almost like a subtext for the show is the greater malls of the Southland area, and I'm just yes. like in my head, I'm keeping track of what malls you name check, and I fucking yeah. love that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, we we brought up uh, West Side Pavilion, and then obviously the that one Sher- Sherman Oaks, yeah, Sherman Oaks Gallery, yeah, 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 all of those. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're suckers for that. Um, but yeah, like uh, I, I actually did really love um, uh, the the recent season of Atlanta, but not at first. You know, like the first episode, I was like, "What the fuck is this? Like, yeah. where where are the guys?" Like, you yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I learned the technique was like I had to watch two episodes uh, in a row, yeah. so that way, like, I would get the anthology episode and the the episode with them in it. So it the would, Bible episode, yeah. Yeah, so it would be it would it would balance out. And um, yeah, I think that you, the episode that you're mentioning that they were shooting is probably my favorite episode, which is uh, new jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously because I love new jazz, free jazz, all of that. And that's going to come up again later on. But um, I wanted to ask you too, since you were there at the location. So is that um, coffee place real? Like it actually serves Nepalese space cakes. Well, that place is pretty famous, and again, I rely on my 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 wife. Is that that's Snoop's place? Oh, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't own it, but Snoop got the word on that decades ago. So they shut it down when Snoop comes to town because he shops there, and it has this <laughs> internet. Well, like if you go to r slash Amsterdam on Reddit or r slash cannabis, okay. that becomes one of these places. It's got rock star credibility because uh, Snoop got the word out on it. Whether it has oh, the best man. shit, I I don't smoke. I drink. I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. My my wife is the degenerate smoker, but uh, she does shop there. She she doesn't oh, do the space man. cake. She just buys her hash there. Okay, gotcha. Because yeah, I mean uh, yes. I- I was going to say, she would, the last time she went there, she asked the guy, uh, after the episode aired, she goes, are you getting a lot of, and the guy cut her off, he said, yes, we're totally tapped out, <laughs> everyone wants the Nepalese space cakes, <laughs> and they think they're going to get the Paperboy experience from it. Oh, man, because yeah, that's what I was thinking, like, uh, I, I mean, I want to visit 
you obviously over there <laughs> and i was thinking we could do that we could do the Nepalese space cake experience <laughs> and meet liam neeson you know at the cancel club you know <laughs> man th- that was so daring of them to do that too where like fucking liam neeson is just like being candid about that that shit like got him canceled and like he's yeah. like fuck no like that's still how i feel yeah. <laughs> amazing shit and yeah, like yeah. I, I, I guess I also have a soft spot for the episode because I, I, I really do feel like it was um, Brian Tyree Henry really kind of came into his own um, in this season more than the other seasons. You know, like uh, I almost feel like the previous season maybe it was uh, Lakeith, you know, um, Darius, yeah. uh, but mm-hmm. he, he's really given the time to shine, and like I think his journey through the season, it like I kind of vibed with it the most, you know. Yeah, Brian Tyree has has. Um, I mean, he just. I think he was nominated for a Tony. Was it two or three years ago for? Um, it was called Mall Cop or Lobby Cop or something like that. It was a Kenneth Lonergan. Okay. And and he, you know, he was the guy that um, he originated the role in Book of Mormon of the uh, Ugandan general. I can't remember what his, the general fucked me in the ass or something. Like That's that. a really <laughs> vulgar name. It was really okay. Weird. Yeah, I I know that when I saw Book of Mormon, it turns out like I didn't realize it, I don't it wasn't him, but I didn't realize that was he started that role. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's yeah, that's like, and and you know like the last time I remember seeing him in something when McQueen put him in um, uh, what was it the uh, the Chicago movie with um, Alfred uh, uh, um, Widows, yeah Widows, Widows yes. Yeah. A smaller role, and it's like, okay, this is. I guess he's a character guy, you know. Maybe he's not mm-hmm. a leading man, but it's like he still needs the right leading man role. And it's clear that it's tough working around the schedule, and maybe they haven't quite found out what he's, you know, like like, like what his bigger thing is, you know, with a career. Don't I, I'm not here to be career guidance, but I do. I'd, I'd love to see more of him. Simply put, you know. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, you, you'll probably, um, you know, you'll have the knives out for him in uh, in Bullet Train. <laughs> because he's doing the british accent which i know you (laughs) have a great video on youtube about uh, british actors doing american accents yes it's it's the inverse Um, well don don Cheadle did the cockney one in all the oceans movies if we can live (laughs) through that i forgot about that oh man yeah 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 for sure um yeah it's just been a crazy like july i feel like um there's so much bad news like it was a weird kind of curse i felt with um every actor i seem to be like texting somebody about or like uh talking about would die (laughs) like it was this crazy thing you know uh um like uh i was talking to rob about we own this city uh i don't know Mm -hmm. if you you're familiar with the show it's the new david simon miniseries like that's what i should be watching but yet because it's episodic i kind of left it to the pile you know what i mean yeah no it's fantastic like uh and it's one of those shows that really prevents you from looking at your phone like you have to be paying attention like it's yeah and um so i was really blown away by john bernthal because you know i kind of just thought of him as like a presence you know it's like he's he's cool like i liked him wolf of wall street um but i never really thought of him as like a serious actor and then like i was like man he's like really channeling jimmy khan with this role and I, yeah. I texted Rob about it, and then, you know, like a week later, Jimmy Khan passes, and then it's just like, damn, Ray Liotta, <laughs> and then Polly Walnuts. It's just like, man, it was it was just crazy. Yeah, I, I got Dude, really. You want, you want to know the one that got? Yeah, no, the one that got me mm-hmm. was uh, David David Warner, who I know is eighty years old still. 
Yeah, I did a video on him. I'm not trying to like press the video, but it's like I, I spent, I would say, something like three or four months inside the headspace, just looking at everything I could possibly look at, writing a comprehensive script, doing, you know, looking at just, you know, hours and hours and hours of archival interviews with him and things like that. You know, all the movies along the way. Yes. And so, you know, I kind of I kind of feel like I was the biographer, like I was his boss. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's I it's a it's a parasocial relationship. I have a man I never met, nor did he ever know I made a video, and yet there's this thing that's a, a de, you know a devotion to his work. And you know when he dies, I kind of feel like his official biographer, just self-elected. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah, man, yeah, David Warner, man, he was the the warlock in um in Time Bandits, right? The yeah, uh, yeah. absolute yeah. pure evil, absolute evil. Called, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like one of my all-time favorite kids' movies, man. Just like the the arm wrestling when they they go to Robin Hood's camp. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was totally like my line of humor. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. oh, incredible. Um, yeah, so there's just been a lot of bad news lately. Uh, it's just crazy, especially, I guess, in in the world of entertainment and media. I don't know why. Like, it's just been happening a lot and like um this one is, uh, that happened even more recently which is like big, eerie to me speaking of like biographies i'm reading like a book of interviews about him and then they announced that um Lars von Trier has parkinsons oh shit yeah 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 how do you feel about Lars von Trier and his films <laughs> like we I have to separate watched... the man and the films no that's true well yeah. the, the man the man i'm always willing to get down with i think you know it, the artist is different from the art and i sure this I, this was my treatise on i mean I'll, I'll whip out my treatise on lynch where i said about lynch that i i can't really get where he's coming from i don't really i, I can't really digest what he's making and yet i sort of feel like you need these people to uh change the industry with their impressions and their art their artistry causes ripple effects down the road and it makes mm-hmm. things that I will watch and things that I will understand become more interesting and more nutritive and more artful. And uh, I think Lars von Trier is one of those same guys, even though his art is different than David Lynch's because it is less abstract. Uh, however, I would yeah. say I've only watched three movies of his. I've watched Element of Crime on Marcus Pinn's uh, Recommend. Okay. I watched Nymphomaniac 1 and of course I've seen Dancer in the Dark, which was you know kind of a media <laughs> sensation when that came out in 2002. Okay, I, I gotta ask, why didn't you watch two? Like Nymphomaniac two? Why did you stop at one? <laughs> uh well, it was in the release schedule, it was I think six to six to twelve months until the next one was coming out. So oh, gotcha. I, it was yeah, it was like I watched it when it was available on stream to watch. Uh I think it was on on demand in New York at the time. Like on the cable package, you could actually buy the damn thing for two ninety nine, which I did. Yeah, and I was like, okay, you know, I, I see what this is. Oh, I've also seen The House That Jack Built, which I oh, actually yeah. really, I really vibed with that. I, it's weird to say, but that's like his most transgressive in, in a way. And sure. yet I sort of, I feel like I understood the most of what he was trying to get across in mm-hmm. that movie. Oh, yeah. The the Uma Thurman freakout scene is like yeah. one of the greatest scenes I think I've ever seen. It's yeah. just, man. Um, yeah, I guess uh, this is where you and I differ because I like to go to the source. You know, but yeah. I, I think you put it very eloquently. Like, um, yeah, that, that that is the thing, and uh, and it's it's relevant to the movie we're about to discuss too, because yes. I, I yeah. think it, it's that type of movie where it, it is pushing boundaries and it's 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 allowing for um, uh, for you know it to be I guess digested and you know um, it pushes for for new forms. Um, I mean, I I think an example, a good example, would be um, actually how uh 
I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Gus Van Sant, uh, like um, uh, digested Bellatar's films, and he made you know an incredible uh, quadrilogy, which was um, from uh, Jerry all the way up until I can I consider Paranoid Park to be part of it. Um, right. Yeah, and the thing with Paranoid Park too is like I have issues with it, but you know how you know there's like fan edits. Like I actually want to make a fan edit of it where it cuts out all the dialogue. And it's just, <laughs> it's just. Well, this the, is why we call films experimental. I mean, I I would go so far in my notes for this. I do definitely have the word experimental written down. The the idea of it's of course it's a film, but I think that it's an experiment at the same time because it winds up you know mixing uh, you know like in the classic what is it reactants, uh, hypothesis, materials, uh, conclusion, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, procedure. And, you know, what this does is it influences somebody else either to do this or to take it up to the side and, and take the pieces of it or, or the procedure and use you know for somebody right. else down the road. Yeah. And experiments also fail. You know, that's what happens, yeah. you know. And I think actually that's the goal from what I remember from from the scientific method. You actually have to test to fail, you know, to experiment in order to fail, you know. Um, and that's what I love. I, I eat that up. And I mean, I guess the last word I'll say on, on Lars von Trier before we move on to the actual movie, um, is that, uh, you know, I, I'm, he's a, he's definitely a filmmaker. I admire a lot, even if I don't like every film he makes, but I'll still watch whatever he makes. Um, and one of his biggest contributions relating to Jimmy Kahn as well. I mean, Bill, you have to see Dogville. Like Dogville is incredible. That's probably, I have heard this before. Yeah. 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 This is, it's probably my favorite LVT movie and it, it has this thing, which I I've created in my head and I should probably tweet about it before anybody else does is that um, I think, I believe that many movies would be improved with a Dogville ending. And okay. uh, you'll only know Crypt- what that cryptic. means. It sounds like cryptic, but yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll know what I mean when you see the movie. So okay. uh, that that's what I'll have to say about Lars von Trier. But it's just crazy <laughs> because, you know, we've been talking about these these filmmakers, and they are like literally a dying breed. Like I think a lot of these innovative storytellers, or um, go beyond that, like image makers, even they're all passing away. You know, like Ab- Abbas Kiarostami, uh, Edward Yang. Like these are really incredible innovators. And um, yeah, the, there's like I struggle to think of like the new generation of filmmakers that are trying to do the same. Like, I feel like, I, I mean, you know, it, obviously the game's changed a lot. The rules have changed and, but there's just a lot more stuff now that's just playing it safe. Well, yeah. it's an epochal shift. I, I hear mm-hmm. what you're saying and, and you're not, you're not wrong, of course, but it, it's like what went extinct is, you know, the same kind of trend uh, a few times before in the industry where the same kind of position or the same, phenomenon of extinction happened for artists who'd never made it past one of the sort of technological or or societal epochs when film moved i mean a lot of the silent guys couldn't make it to you know talkies and you know the color the the black and white guys couldn't make it to color and tv wiped out so much stuff and there's i mean there's just again so many epochs i'm not trying to be blasé about it because it is it is a sad thing when when artists get relegated to a dust heap but I mean, I have a long view about it. Like I know for a fact, humanity, you know, may predecease the Earth, but the Earth will be just fine. You know, there's going to be some dinosaur species ten billion years from now that's going to take over from us. I'm okay with that long yeah. view. <laughs> yeah, uh, I take that know, view it, too. <laughs> yeah, but it's like with with the art that I see, I can't make heads or tails sometimes of the music or of the way kids interact with media on TikTok 
uh, or, or, you know, they play Roblox and Minecraft and, and there's all these things. It's like, it's just, this isn't how media looks to me. And it's like, it's an epochal shift from what I grew up with, which right. is Star Trek two mm. to fucking Roblox. And it's like, well, it makes sense <laughs> to somebody if it doesn't make sense to me. So I got to be okay with that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just, um, we're, we're the dinosaurs build. That's just it. It's like, we're, <laughs> dude, you're 37. You can't possibly, <laughs> how many dinosaurs got to be 37 years old? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I still feel like I'm 36. So, you know, I haven't, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck in that age. Uh, um, but yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like actually the only kind of thing to break the cycle are vanity projects. Uh, yeah. If you know what I'm talking about, it's like, you know, these, these self-funded filmmakers who basically don't have anybody telling them what to do. And that's it. But, you know, oftentimes these movies end up being one-offs. And then they never yeah. make anything again. Or it's like they... You know, they, you know what? No, go ahead. I was going to say, you know what I think the ultimate vanity... Pro- I'm sorry to cut you off. The ultimate vanity project to me, I thought were Barney's Creamaster series. Oh, yes. You yes. know, there's something... Mm. I mean, I know he's gone on past... He's, he did River of Fundament. He did a couple yeah. of movies after that. And I haven't seen all the Creamasters. Mm. But in terms of like... Um, the, I, I, I can only think of a few other artists who kind of get to indulge the sense... Mm-hmm. Lars von Trier is more of a traditional feature guy, and I think a Werner Herzog still makes movies for himself, even though they appeal to me and everyone else who's watching the Toronto Film Festival online. You know, and, and the, the difference is, is that a guy like Barney is so far up his own ass with his Vaseline <laughs> and his latex, and there's something incredibly invaluable about it. it as as cryptic, cryptic and inscrutable as what he's doing is, it's like, God damn, if more people knew about Cremaster... As a as like a modern spinning wheel that affected technology outwards from its own industrial revolution, imagine what that would have done if more artists had been inspired by Cremaster, and then like circa two thousand five went on from there and carried those little bits and pieces of DNA out into the art. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, th- this is where we differ again. I fucking love Barney, and yeah, <laughs> yeah he's definitely. I, I think uh, a subconscious influence on me. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything um, similar to what I do to what he does. But sure. yeah, the fact that he is paving his own way, and you know, you're saying like not many people have seen it because he he puts this very strict um, condition oh, yeah. that it's yeah. only meant to be shown theatrically. Like, there's never gonna be like some people have tried in vain to upload it on YouTube and stuff like that, but it, it gets taken down. Um, and yeah, these things just don't last. Like he, he has his finger on the pulse of whenever it shows up, like it gets taken down. And, um, and it, it's weird too, because, you know, a lot of these, these films were shot on video and then transferred to film. It was that weird time where you could only project on, on 35. Um, you couldn't do video projection. So he converted it and that, that is lost in the, the, the streaming copies that show up on like YouTube because it, it didn't go through that process. So it's just straight up video and it doesn't right. look good. <laughs> like my favorite is a Cremaster 5, which is oh. I think the one which is an opera. Um, and, oh, okay. right. and yeah, like the version that's shown up online is terrible because it's just, it looks just crappy video. But uh, when I saw it, like I actually saw the, uh, the Guggenheim did a one day like whole day screening of all the cream masters back to back to back with just like a dinner break. And I, I went to see it and yeah, I mean, I, I felt different <laughs> after I left. Well, that, that was, yeah. that was during the, um, that was during the exhibit, right? Cause I, uh, I we went, 
we went to go see the exhibit when he was like they had all the artifacts like they had shot i think it was cream master three that's why there was still vaseline and whatnot all over the um all over the uh the sort of helix the staircase yeah yeah like, yeah because it, it was yeah. shot in the rotunda yeah yeah exactly yeah. um i don't know if it was i mean i'm sure they probably showed it during the screen uh but like i think uh the day i went i i didn't have time to go to the museum so i just i just went to see the movie um but yeah yeah you're right about matthew barney like um yeah they they still exist and then maybe that is it like um the route to go is basically to be an artist just out and out an artist who occasionally gets screened in in theaters like i mean you know uh another big uh, influence on me is james benning and he's able to do that and you know i talked to him and he said basically he just makes a movie without even thinking about like where it's going to end up. And then he just gets invited like to festivals where they ask him, Oh, have you got anything new? And then they like, okay, I got this thing. And then they show it. And his only rule is that you have to fly him out with the work, you know? So <laughs> he's there, he can observe the projection, make sure that you're, you're doing it correctly. And then also, um, uh, do a Q and a, which are wildly entertaining, by the way, I highly recommend, even if you don't like, james benning's work like his his q a's are are fantastic how old is that man by the way he is i believe 75 or his mid 70s okay. about so he's getting there too and it's like i'm becoming more cognizant of of my favorite filmmakers ages and yeah. they're they're all up there they're like getting to 70 80 so it's like we may only get like one or two more movies out of them and then that's it, you know. Uh, I yeah. mean, uh, I think uh, Marcus mentioned it like when he attended like a Q and A of Michael Mann about like how he was going deaf. And I remember yeah. Chantal yeah. Ackerman was the same way. Like in her last few years at Q and A, she was also going deaf. And she was uh, just in her sixties, for God's sake. Yeah, and it's terrible. You know, it was so sad. Um, well, Herzog, know, I think Herzog is pushing eighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verhoeven, Verhoeven is pushing eighty. I mean, not not the same caliber, but this, you talk about a, a bulwark of artists too. We came of age with the, from the seventies onwards. Yeah, they are. They're getting older. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, the, even the the young generation that used to be, they're pushing in their fifties now. And, you know, my generation, I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's it's my implicit bias that um, <laughs> that is just like I don't really like uh, filmmakers that are my age. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just rare. Like maybe I think uh, the guy who made um, uh, what was that that movie that was kind of like a Terrence Malick film that I brought up to the zebras uh, a while back. Um <laughs> what was the? It, what was the? Yeah, what's the? Give me more description. It was that. like <laughs> all the lights, something. Ah, uh-huh. oh, man, why am I? I still remember his first film's title though, because you don't forget it. It's like called Fuck for Forest. Uh, hold on, let me just uh, do a quick Google. I'm gonna die yeah, if I don't to... find out. <laughs> um, so uh, wait, this is the organization. I want the movie. Yeah. Um. Wait, so make a Marzak. What's the movie? No, 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 I'm looking. I found a Dutch uh, website. Okay, my, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mik- Mik- Michael Marzak. Oh, I've yeah. never heard of this before. Okay. All, all These Sleepless Nights. Like, okay. that. that's a film that I, I really like. And, yeah, Michael Marzak is around my age. So, um, yeah. But uh, generally, I, th- I think that's really it. it I, maybe it's, it's my old school temperament that I only tend to admire what came before me, <laughs> mm-hmm. not, not what comes after. Um, and then, uh, but you always oh, manage to find new stuff. I mean, it may be piecemeal, but there's, there's. I think that if you were truly dead inside, and there mm-hmm. was just like a, a small bit of like 
burnt uh, tree branch at the very core of you, you would have given up a long time ago, and you'd just be listening to like Tommy Dorsey music on vinyl. Sure, it's not happening. You know? Which I do actually. <laughs> I know you, you do, caught but you me. Don't on... Only do that. <laughs> Stardust with like Frank Sinatra <laughs> in that contract that he couldn't get out of until like uh, Don Vito <laughs> gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Oh man, love that shit. Um, uh, but yeah, like uh, no, for sure. I uh, maybe. I just don't tend to look at the ages and until like they they get up there. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm sure when I go through my list, like I I have um because there was this thing I was invited to. It was kind of like a a rebuttal to the like the sight and sound like best 21st century films list. Hmm. So I when I did my submission for that, I'm I'm positive there's a lot of filmmakers there that are pretty young, you know, because they they made their films in in the 2000s. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, that's just a curmudgeon in me, but anyway, so, uh, I guess this is a good segue, especially since I mentioned Paranoid Park because he plays the uncle in Paranoid Park and he was the cinematographer, uh, on Paranoid Park. So, uh, we're going to be talking about Away With Words directed by Christopher Doyle and he co-wrote the script with, uh, Tony Raines and this came out in 1998. And it's funny because if you look it up on IMDb, they still say the movie year is 99. And it just brought me back to this interview with Bellatar where he argues with this uh, interviewer about the year that Damnation came out. Because the, the guy says, oh, Damnation came out in 1988. And he was like, no, it was 1987. And he said, well, according to IMDb. And then Bellatar says, IMDb is a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's a piece of, and uh, yeah, the audience had that reaction too. Like they laughed, um, and yeah, it's true. Like there's this contention with years, and I don't know if you go through this too, Bill. When you do your list of like uh, best, your favorites of the year, do you consider the film festival year or the the year it came out when you saw it? No, it's always the year that it came out when I saw it. That's gotcha. Gotta be the, uh, that's got to be the ultimate mm-hmm. basis of it. I mean, if, if it matters, uh, it, so what if it came out at a film festival? It's got to be when, chances are, mm-hmm. I was not at the film festival. So when was it sort of commercially available to find? And I'll, 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 yeah. i I got to place it there. Yeah, it, I guess the, the OCD part of me that's just annoying is that, yeah, I, I do the same. I, I make my list based on what I saw in the past year. But then, you know, it's when you look back at the list and, you know, say it's in Letterboxd or in IMDb, you see that the year is off and I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, we have confirmation that after uh, Away With Words came out in 98 because also you sent me some bonus material and all of that was dated 1998 as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Bill, uh, tell me. What do you think Away With Words is about? <laughs> well, I mean, I looked to see what it was about by reading, I mean, reading some of the back matter, watching what he himself, what Doyle was saying it was about, trying to synthesize it, um, even though he specifically forbade that with his work uh, with Wong Kar Wai. Right. Um, you know, and, and also to think about the man, th- there's an amazing story here, which I had to look into deeper to see, well, Christopher Doyle is this bilingual Australian who had such a strange, circuitous journey to come to film from all these other gigs along the way. Yeah. And he's 70 years old now. And I just sort of, you know, when I first started paying attention to film, he was one of these, um, uh, you know, statesmen. He just was like a pillar of film because he was Wong Kar Wai's cameraman. And, right. you know, 
it's like, well, it's so weird. There, there's a, a, you know, an English speaking guy who plied his trade in Hong Kong and became part of the firmament, which I mean, that's not what, you know, there weren't a lot of Anglos plying their trade in China, Chinese film, not in the 70s, not for the Shaw brothers. I mean, maybe in Hong Kong, it makes more sense along the way. But, right. um, you know, and, and it's like watching this movie. I can see how synthetic it is. Not, I'm not saying synthetic like fabricated. I mean, synthetic in terms of how many influences are poured into it, where what might seem to me to be a lot of um, a hash of random things, there is a lot of thought put into what, you know, what happens here at this time and what does it lead into? What is the linkage between this scene? If you're watching a visual of... Tadanobu Asanu atop a bus uh, somewhere either in China or Tokyo. I can't remember where he was at that point. Oh, you is know, this like, the sped up footage? Yeah, and he's in a few. He, like, part of it, he's like sitting cross legged, and part of it, he's like reclining. It's in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's, all right, that's, a, that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the same in Kowloon City yeah. or something. Right. Yeah, and, and, and like there's all these different things. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a poem, it's almost like an epic poem where, uh, you know, there's themes that recur through the thing. And it's like, he's bringing these ideas that are really more figurative than literal. And he asked actors who aren't actors, which is always one of those things that lets you know, you know it's a signpost for the kind of movie he wants to make. And that, I mean, Tadanobu Asano is Tadanobu Asano. Yes. He's an actor through and through. And it's like, at this point in his career, he'd already been busy, I'd say for close to five or six years. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him until Ichi, you know, in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. 2001. Yeah. 2001 was a big year for him. He was like in several movies that year. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the funny thing is, it's like, if you're looking to make a Marvel comics universe, Marvel cinematic universe connection with this, it's like he was in the Thor movies, uh, up, up into Ragnarok. It's just really strange. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a tortured lineage. Uh, but you know, like the, the weird thing watching this is I had this idea. Well, actually when you pitched this and you said, Hey, what do you want to do? And I yeah. said, well, I, I really want to play in your ball field. I want to be on the, I want to be the visiting guy that comes over there. Cause I could tell you, Hey, let's watch Tron legacy again. Yeah. Oh, I've sure never that's... seen it. So that well, would have okay. been great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. been, yes, it would have been great. And you would have liked it. It would have been fine, too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I really want you to challenge me again with something, <laughs> if not outwardly Brissonian, or maybe something more akin to the ice rink, which, you know, the ice rink was just this movie that we watched on a DVD that had a, you know, Bruce Campbell on the cover. It was, right. you know, a fairly, <laughs> fairly typical release that was, <laughs> it was a 480 DVD. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this, was a, this was a challenge because, again, the non-literal figurative part is always a thing when you start to disconnect story from impression. Uh, I'm not saying you. I'm saying mm. when per, the second person. Um, then I mean I get I get unmoored, and it's a challenge to hang with the movie when I get unmoored. And it, it, what it means is that from the beginning, maybe within 15 minutes or so, because 15 minutes is you're meeting the characters, you're getting familiar with the um, the visual style, the location, the setting. All these things are they're literal until they're not literal anymore. And yeah. it becomes not literal, I would say, you know, that's about a quarter of an hour part of a, a ninety minute run or however long. Yeah, and that's usually is. um the real change too, uh, for those who used to watch stuff on film. <laughs> they right. usually do it oh, yeah, okay. yeah, fifteen, sure. twenty yeah. minutes and they, they change the reels. Yeah, and so I you know, I I was prepared for this. What it means mm-hmm. is that I'm hanging on by fingertips mm-hmm. through the rest of the movie. <laughs> so I mean I, I wound up I broke I had had to break this into two screenings because sure. um I think I bumped off about 50 minutes yesterday and then um, me and uh, 50 minutes before my regular movie 
uh, movie club on, you know, the nightly movie club. Last night, by the way, we watched uh, Pinheiro with Benjamin Brown. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've ever I've seen, seen it. I've never no. seen it. Yeah, that was like a passion project. It was about mm. the Puerto, Rican, Puerto Rican poet Miguel Pinheiro, who died in '88. So it was a real trip around. I mean, the movie was shot in 2001 in New York, so it's real. That's the year I like. I got there, so that's like a pretty, pretty weird, uh, pretty weird thing. Anyway, besides the point, I had to split it up between that and I. I picked up the back half today, and so it's almost like I took a breather, got a couple hours. I played Framed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I play it too. Um, yeah, I mean, most people have uh, probably guessed the movie by now. I mean, you know, we're yes. going to be posting it. So, what what was today's movie? Oh, today's movie wasn't it Mrs. Doubtfire? I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, very, I, I, I think the first frame I would have guessed the judge <laughs> with Robert uh, Duvall. <laughs> No, but you know what it was like. Mm. They they showed an establishing shot of Frisco, which is like doesn't oh, help me. Sure. Could have been any one of it. Fuck mm. this, yeah. Mm. It's only when they show Robert Prosky and Robin Williams, I'm like, oh, okay, come on, <laughs> yeah, help me exactly. Out here. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know how people can go through every six frames and not guess what the movie is because those last few ones yeah. are always dead giveaways. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> well, do you play do you play Movie Duel and Flixel or Flickle rather? Um, is that the one where it's like one second you see? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I played it a couple times. Yeah, and then the other ones uh, yeah. like the key you're guessing it through keywords. Uh, no, no, uh, no. That's uh, a, a different uh, movie game. Then. No, what F- Flickle? Flickle is like framed, except it's uh, I want to say uh, five seconds of, of footage. Okay, but it's yeah, it's a, it's it's about the same idea where you can you guess it? it's like name that tune. Can you mm-hmm. name this from four seconds of footage? Right. And, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny because that's like around in um in the movie trivia game that we used to play at Videology. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, they'll sure. show you a clip, and then sometimes there would be a question about the clip too. It's like how many buttons were on her dress. <laughs> ah, God, Jesus! But uh, I, I found I found that putting the ga- I knew I would uh, have to do something like that, and mm-hmm. also I knew that I, I shouldn't start watching this movie a- after like eleven thirty local sure. time. Uh, you know, I should watch in the optimal optimal conditions to mm-hmm. pick up on it. So you know, I, I mean, it's like it's hard not to get. I, I mean, the, I think the real winner of this movie is that guy Kevin Sherlock. He's got this. Cr- um, you know the the charisma of watching a non actor, and I guess technically, um, the, uh, Krista Hughes, who was that's the Australian folk, she's the Australian cabaret singer. Oh, she fantastic! Really cra- yeah, she was yeah, superb. Yeah, I was trying to find more things from her. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mavis and Mavis Shoe was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the old lady Georgina Dobson who does her version <laughs> of the message. Was yes, definitely. Yeah. Us, yeah, it's funny too because um, you sent me that uh, that kind of um extra bit yeah. of that of the music video but it's actually on my copy it's the yeah, post-credit yeah, scene yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's just a breakaway in case in case you tuned out like i noticed that there was three minutes left like i'm not turning this off. yeah that's what everything. i saw too yeah i was looking at the time and i was like this is a long credit sequence like because i think it starts yeah. like with seven minutes to go Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's why I was, I was really confused. I didn't realize yeah, it was like, almost like a, an added additive. Yeah. How many visual effects do they have in this movie? <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. Right. How many? How many uh, craft services? People yeah. Were exactly. Are they listing all the babies that they had during production? <laughs> you know, like Pixar. Like a Pixar movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So um, no, I totally get it. And yeah, this is actually also a first for me on this podcast because. Normally, when we pick movies um, from the past, it's usually movies we've seen before and we want to watch again. Uh, the only times that we actually do movies that we've never seen before is usually a new release. So this is the first time we've done something where, when you know, when we were trying to pitch this and figure it out, like I said, I want to watch something I haven't seen either. I don't want to be like in familiar territory where I can just, you know, 
talk with my eyes closed or, you know like i need something where it's um it's unfamiliar and it's something that i've been meaning to watch um you know i i'm a big admirer of chris doyle like and his method and it's funny because um the way that i would probably sum it up is like smoking drinking and screwing which is the name of a section of a bookstore in 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 New York that I remember. And I was like, yeah, Chris Doyle lives in that section. That's where he's, yeah. <laughs> that's like, it's fueled by that. And like, you know, um, the other thing that really spoke to me about the movie is that he, he talks about in the interview about the energy of a, a mistake. And then the interviewer actually asked him like, uh, where does that energy come from? And he says, it comes from loneliness. And I'm like, that's right. totally me. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what it is. And, um, and uh, yeah, the, you sent me this EPK with the voiceover and everything, and it's like the wildest EPK I've ever seen. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. it, it really captures the energy, and you feel like the momentum. And yeah, you were talking about like Doyle's uh, history. Like I would even expand on like the before and after Wong Kar Wai, which is basically um, he start he actually got his first start with Edward Yang. You know, his first movie where he was cinematographer was that day on the beach. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with Edward Yang. Let's say this stuff, oh, that's a lot of uh, the dark spot for me. Bill, we got to get into Edward Yang. We're going to have you back okay. for the Edward Yang episode okay. because okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm really curious how you feel about him because I think, and this is me putting him up on a pedestal, setting expectations, and you're going to shoot me down when you see it. <laughs> but uh, I think he's he's one of the great storytellers in cinema. Like okay. he has mastered like the medium in terms of, of visuals, you know, because you have like, you mentioned um John Sales like you have good storytellers but they're just literate you know it's like um it's words you know it, 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 i mean they they do have some good visuals i mean you know he he shot movies with Haskell Wexler no, um, no, John Sales is a textual guy. That's, mm-hmm. that's a t- totally different thing. Yeah, and like, I mean, you know, the sex scene in, in Lone Star is great. Like, it's beautifully mm-hmm. shot. Um, But, uh, and then, you know, how it figures into the plot, too, is um, incredible. But anyway, um, that's another story. But uh, I feel like Edward Yang is one of the few people that has that balance. Because, you know, I mean, this movie leans more towards images and poetry, and then there's there's people who lean more towards story and plot. And I think Edward Yang strikes that balance. He was one of the few people who did it, you know, because uh, it's so hard to do it. Like even um, like Brackage has this incredible talk that I listened to where he says, like, you know, in order for you to actually make images that that make sense, you know, and really, um, you know, have something that's cogent and coherent, you have to spend a lot of money. You know, yeah. there's no other way because it's just like it. he calls it a recalcitrant medium, which I really love. And I mean, this is also part of why I chose this movie, because you have a way with words. And, you know, obviously the, the title is a pun. And uh, there's words that I don't usually hear in my day to day that I hear from you. Like, um, actually, uh, this is a good tease for uh, my next episode with Steve, where we're going to be doing a catch up where I'm going to bring up the movie that dethroned Triple R as my favorite movie of last of of this year so far because it features okay. a lot of defenestrations. <laughs> yeah. oh, so shit. so yeah, um so yeah, it, it it's really difficult to strike that balance, but Edward Yang does it and like uh, I mean, you know, my my first entry was um was EE uh, which is obviously the one that everybody can see because it's on the Criterion collection. But they, they've also added um, Brighter Summer Day. But 
I even loved the other movies that um, still are waiting for that remaster, the the 4K re-release. I think That Day on the Beach got one, um, which I still haven't finished. Uh, <laughs> it's very different from Christopher Doyle's style now. Like he he is like basically, um, what is that the a workman you know where it's like uh he's just a, yeom- a yeoman or yeah yeoman. yeah so it, it it's it's very still um he's he's not doing anything flashy in that movie um yeah uh but yeah like i think uh it depending on what translation you're looking at it's either the terrorist the terrorizer the te- uh, terrorizers like i think is is an incredible film by edward yang and that's really where he hit that that balance and oh i forgot the taipei story is actually on the criterion too it's in that marty box set uh the second one okay. and that's great because he directs um oh who's that Shen. Shen. yeah he's he and he actually is a brilliant actor in it and it, it's oh. crazy because it, it's a movie that um uh that predicts the future <laughs> which is you know i mean one of the things that uh that every yang is doing i guess in terms of like urbanization of taipei like all those things and i just love hearing the stories about him and hu shao shen because it reminds me of of Godard and um, Truffaut of like how, you know, they when early on when they were starting, they were like showing each other movies and learning, right. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and um, yeah, that, that story. Yeah. But like, I can't wait for you to get into Edward Yang, uh, Bill. Like, okay. yeah. So, yeah, we'll have you back for that. We, we definitely have to do uh, an Edward Yang. I'll, so, I'll pad I'll pad the landing. I'll put some uh, fire retardant foam down. Fantastic. On the <laughs> to, catch, to catch the plane as it comes in on fire. All right. Fantastic. Just like the old uh, Hong Kong airport. Did you know that that the airport like was right in the middle of the city? Oh, Kai Tak. Yeah, yeah I love they... watching videos of Kai Tak. Oh, it's, it's, that was one of those legendary, <laughs> I, this is so off topic, but yeah, no, I love it. And if, if anybody in the sound of my voice right now, there are so many videos of Kai Tak because it was um, uh, it was a short little thing. You came down over the mountain and the what, there was a crosswind and the, the people would have to set their planes down at like a 40 degree angle Whoa. and it would straighten as soon as they hit the tarmac. <laughs> did, 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 you may not, that may not make sense to you, but watch the videos on YouTube. Amazing. It's legendary. Yeah, and you know, tying into Wong Kar Wai, like obviously him and uh, Chris Doyle shot a lot of their scenes stolen, by the way, in Chunking yeah. Express. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so all the scenes that take place at the airport there, just before you know they they changed it. Um, yeah, they were all stolen shots, which I I love. You know, that, I live for stolen shots. Like that's also well, what, what he tried to do. The, um, what do you think the the Hong Kong proscription on stolen shots was? Do you think that it was really, especially back? That's before the handover. Do you think? Do you think that like it was a big fucking deal? I, I mean, this is like people who go gorilla in New York, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, how much trouble are you going to get in? If you got a camera. <laughs> True, it's on your shoulder. Yeah, you're not putting sticks down on asphalt. Mm-hmm. It's like no right. one gives a shit what you're. Yeah, you're you're honestly. not blocking anybody's way. Like I think, yeah, yeah. they were pretty yeah. lax with it. I, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that obviously changed after the handover, and I think the the year is very critical too of when this movie came out because it's 1998. So. Um, uh, his last collaboration with with Wong was um, uh, Happy Together in '97, and that was also uh, the handover. And um, this was kind of a lull where Wong was like having trouble securing funding for um, uh, In the Mood for Love. So uh, Chris Doyle had that downtime to make it, and then it was just like, I guess, very prescient that uh, In the Mood for Love ended up being their last collaboration. Like they haven't worked together since because. Um, he just got tired of that method of like basically yeah. like waiting for the money to come in, changing everything. And then also because Wong kind of slowed his pace, you know, where Doyle is so used to like, yeah, when you see this EPK, 
is crazy. He's like, come on, let's keep it moving. Like the the voiceover is saying that he's the director, he's the cinematographer, he's his own assistant, he's also the the comfort coach for the actors. Like he's doing everything. You know, he's like a general. Um, yeah. So I think he wanted to maintain that momentum, and that's also the reason why, like his chosen path now for his career is basically helping out younger filmmakers, which is great. Like, uh, yeah, Chris Doyle, if you hear this, please help me out. Like, I want you to shoot, <laughs> shoot one of my movies. Uh, but that's what he's been doing. He's helping a lot of directors who are making their first-time films or, like, are, are are seeking to, like, establish themselves. And, I mean, I think one of the, the most beautiful results, even though, like, I think they had a very contentious relationship, um, was uh, Last Life in the Universe. Uh, which also stars Tadanobo Asano. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a really beautiful Thai film. Um, and this was the thing, like everybody was like going crazy over, you know, the credits of The Departed showing up like, you know, 45 minutes into the movie. Like Thai movies did that first. But <laughs> okay. yeah, so Apichapong, Apichapong, uh, Joe. Uh, yeah, he, Joe yeah, yeah. So um, Blissfully Yours, the credits also show up 45 minutes into the movie. And then uh, same with Last Life into the Universe. It's like midway through. And then, you know... It, make, yeah, it makes Drive My Car look like amateur. Yeah, hour, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're, um, yeah, they're kind of... Yeah, that's the one that everybody's using as an example. And I'm that curmudgeon where I'm like, hmm. Like, you know, it's like... <laughs> I've seen that before. Like, it's nothing revolutionary. I know exactly why it, it happens. And, you know, at that point... So have you seen Drive My Car, Bill? I just want to do that segue yeah. real quick. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, I've seen, and you know, mm-hmm. to see Drive My Car, I believe I broke it up into three bite-sized morsels okay. that were perfectly uh, appropriate. Each and hour? I, you know, I, yeah. One hour uh, each? Maybe, maybe each hour, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I wound mm-hmm. up loving it. Mm-hmm. I understand how exhaustive and exhausting it was because of the, um, you know, I think the perfect metaphor of that movie, and again, I, I don't want to stay on this for too long, but the idea that when they were doing the um, script reading and in between each line, they would knock on the table. And there was something very formal about it. There was a ritual. And I remember at one point in one of my acting classes that I took back in New York when I was, I mean, I studied acting because I wanted to, not because I wanted to be an actor, because I wanted to know what actors do. We went through uh, breaking down a piece of text and it was tortuous. It was arduous. <laughs> yeah. It was three hours of the slowest line read and, and pulling apart each line. And it's hypnotic and it's almost like ASMR after a while. And I remember thinking, like, I, I've seen this before. I know what the point is. It is hypnosis. Everyone's got a knock on the table when they read on their line. And the whole point is to lull you into a sense of submission. And to, to a degree, the whole movie, in a way, was a little bit like that. Right. In such a, such a technique. Yeah, I, 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 I was disappointed by it. <laughs> I, okay. I mean, I would be remiss, too, to mention that, you know, like, I was surprised when I saw the IMDb and it said it was in multiple languages and one was mm-hmm. in Tagalog. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah, Perry Dizon, who is like, uh, basically a staple in Love Diaz films. He's like in every Love Diaz film. Uh, he's great in it. And like his, his yeah. line de- delivery is fantastic, but I was disappointed in it primarily because I didn't know whether Hamaguchi was making his film or trying to make a Murakami film. Like I was, it was like, to me, it fell in between that, that, uh, that void and um and he made two films last year too and his other movie yeah, yeah, yeah. wheel of fortune and fantasy is fantastic like i love yeah, that movie what, some people say that's the thing if you didn't get into the one the other i didn't see wheel of wheel of fortune and fantasy yeah but it, it was enough to like well i'm gonna i gotta do this and i will trepidatiously watch the other one at some point but let me just yeah. narrow in on one right. experiment and one. um yeah it feels more like a murakami 
adaptation Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy because it's it's episodic. It, it's three different stories. Um, yeah, and it, it feels like it has this light spirit, which I think is missing. It, obviously, you know, death is involved with this one, but there was a way that Murakami wrote like sadness where it seemed fashionable if that makes sense you know it's like cool to be you know it's like goth or whatever like that's how murakami writes sadness and loneliness you know it's actually like a pose in a way (laughs) um so uh yeah and uh you know some it's really hard to adapt murakami I'll, i'll give you that i mean you know it's like um uh like uh i think one of the few successful ones is actually uh uh, Tony Takitani. Um, oh, it's okay. fantastic. I mean, do you how do you feel about um Ryuchi um Sakamoto, the composer? Oh well, I think I don't I have a heart? I love his work. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. So um yeah, his score in in Tony Takitani is fantastic. And it, it runs almost all throughout the entire movie. Like there's one moment where it pauses. And it's incredible. Um so yeah, I that that to me is like the perfect murakami for doing like a literal adaptation where it's like faithful and all that bullshit um you know the the thing about drive my car is that i mean even you could look back at uh tadanobu asano's performance here mm -hmm. and even some of the other performances you know there is a mode of acting that comes from japan depending on what generation you're at i think us uh, he's we're the same me and him are the same age i think he's born in 75 or something like that maybe maybe he's i can't remember how old he is yeah anyway yeah, thereabouts. But it's like there is um I can't remember the leading man who was in Drive My Car. But you know, it's it's mannered. It is a very almost English type stately acting that res- reserves quite a bit for you to fill in the gap and it's all decisions. Those are it's all craft. It is it is a measure of the direction. And um even in this movie, Asano uh, uh Asano does this thing where he himself is very reserved. And he is an enigmatic, um, you know, some Japanese actors give a lot of themselves. And like when you watch a Cyan Sono movie, mm. I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to mention him anymore because he's a fucking creep. <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard about that shit. It's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. But but at least you wind up getting the, um, you know, you wind up getting the full measure of humanity and all its <laughs> crapulence and all of its sort of... Uh, yeah. And, and it's like, well, I definitely, uh, uh, you know, the extremes, uh, you know... I mean the three extremes. What do you, you know? To, to lack of a better term, yeah. like you, you get you get something from that that you don't get from some other Japanese actors. You know, like one of the things about Katano is that he is one of those guys that holds a lot back. Sure. And if you're watching something like Hana B, the movie is fueled by his enigma, and you you go along with it because it pays off so much more. Since you can't exactly see what he's doing with his wife as he drives around in fireworks. Right. And it, be- it becomes so exultant at the end of the movie. It's this enormous catharsis I found. But you really have to get into an actor who his face doesn't move. It's a stone face. It's yeah. like Buster Keaton. You know, he just he's not an expressive performer. He's not going to break out into crying. I mean, he may. Yeah. But it's not the thing you expect from. Yeah. I mean, the, the smile in the movie is like a big moment. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 And it, it, actually one of my favorite uh, Twitters that just shows up on my, f- uh, my uh, timeline from time to time. I don't actually follow them because I, I don't know. I would get tired of it, but when it pops up, I love it. It's called um, <laughs> Sonatine bot, I think, or oh, I believe yeah. Yeah. I so from another yeah. Kitano movie. So when these random shots show up, I was just like, this is brilliant. Like I should watch this movie again. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up the acting style with 
Asano because uh, this is kind of his default. Like it, it often is what he does. Like he shows up as kind of despondent, kind of not quite present. Um, yeah. And uh, it's funny because like he he will disappear into these roles sometimes. Like he does in um in his movies with uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, um, which I didn't even realize with Koreeda's like first um proper fiction film i don't know if it's his first movie but he made documentaries before but uh maborosi i didn't even remember him being in it i was like what <laughs> like asano was in this movie and then i watched it again and then i was like oh okay yeah that's him but he also has this way of of changing his look you know but it's very subtle it's like facial hair length of his hair and you know you brought up ichi the killer which is my favorite performance of him be- because it is atypical like it's not what he usually does it's it's a crazy performance you know yeah. it really he's he's really putting himself out there um and yeah it's just uh to me like yeah it's it, it overshadows the rest of the movie because you know when he's not in it you miss him you know it's like it's it, yeah. is, it is strange to go in that yeah that movie is so i mean granted you would i wouldn't know it because that again i watched it when it came out on, on dvd and yeah, I mean it's it's such a um I mean that's Mike, right? That's yes. Takashi Mike. Yep. Yeah, it's like that was really I was like, I gotta see what this Mike guy is about as he's starting to break. I mean, Amer- American and Anglo uh audience were so it's like he's part of the process. <clears throat> I didn't have any preconceived notions about what he did, but yes, I mean with the fact that his mouth was sort of hinged yes. for lack of a better term. Yeah. So many strange uh, you know, just so many grace notes about that movie. Yeah, and when we you see his teeth, like I remember because I I've watched that movie with the commentary, they're saying like he looks like an animal. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's what they say. Um yeah. yeah. He's just really taking risks with that performance. And yeah, everything I mean he I, you know, he was almost like I think of it like he's a Japanese uh, Ewan McGregor, you know, mm-hmm. where he came around to the same age. And there's the brash energy of that generation where, you know, you and McGregor got to fuck around under Danny Boyle for a while doing some really audacious things, you know, and it's like whatever you and McGregor settled into recently isn't nearly as interesting. I mean, I I haven't been enthralled by his choices. I know it's just difficult when you're a Scots actor who's got to do a really poor American accent. <laughs> yes. You're not going to get great roles. You're going to get weird roles and some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't. Um, you know, and I, God knows if anybody watched his directorial debut, he he directed Philip Roth's um, Jesus, what was that movie? He directed a Philip. He did an adaptation of Philip. Roth. It wasn't was like a The Human Stain. He didn't direct that. No, no, no. no. It wasn't The Human Stain. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. Okay, um, not it was. But it was a dis- Goodbye, Columbus. It was a <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I thought he touched that. No. Oh man. Okay. But uh, so I could see Asanu. I mean, talk about around that same time. You know, you uh, McGregor's doing the Star Wars. You know, prequels. He he's he's doing all this stuff, and it's like that is an analog, except Tadano uh, Asanu just was not really fucking around in English language. So yeah. he got to stay kind of pure and just work on his technique and stay inside Japan for the most part. Yeah. I mean, this is the other prescient thing about the film is the multiple languages in it um, because that kind of became the direction of a lot of filmmakers today that are you would consider to be international filmmakers. They 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 dabble in, in English movies and those become like their biggest hits. You know, yeah. when they, they make an English film. I mean, obviously, Bong Joon-ho is probably the the worst example because it was when he went back to Korea that <laughs> that yeah. he had his biggest hit. But um, Are we are we agreeing that um, uh, Okja was not really a sterling moment in his career? No, not at all. Okay. But I do have right. a soft spot for, for Snowpiercer, but that's also because I like trains. 
So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and cannibalism. Yes, and yeah, and uh, yeah, and I also like them uh, Bullet Train actually, which a lot of people are kind of meh about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I guess it makes sense. That tracks now that you say it. Yeah, yeah. Anything I said on a train, you've already sold me. So, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's like, uh, the, I mean, another example I would use. Uh, I don't know if you've seen um, The Square. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big, big Oslin fan. In fact, yeah. I just watched the, tr- the trailer last night for the new one. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, excited for that, that one, too. And yeah, yeah. In, it's like him and Lanthimos have now like firmly moved into English language. It seems like I don't think they're yeah. going to go back. Um, yeah. but yeah, that, that's really it. I mean, reading the Lars von Trier book, like he's asked that question. It's like, why is element of crime in English? You know? And he says, yeah, yeah because that's... it's just going to get more notice. It's, uh, you know, it's easier to distribute. You don't have to subtitle it, you know? So, um, so yeah, that, that, that seems like that's an option. And, you know, as an actor, if you are multilingual, it is useful because that's, that's where things are heading. And, yeah and also the fact that there's like let's just say there's a massive um like one of those wheat threshers that goes through a cornfield mm-hmm. or whatever a machine that is just chopping down uh a harvest and it is sucking up every single actor you can imagine from every single country <laughs> yes so long as they speak english you're going to get the, the danes are going to be spat into oh the my god yes you know that the Asian actors are going to go to these uh, other places. The Brits and the Scots are going to go to dramas on Netflix. <laughs> uh, it's like you need every all hands on deck because we have a real drought right now. Every single thing that comes out, you need a nonstop supply of of all these actors. And it's like uh, you know, I say this here with a great amount of like uh, regard for the Dutch in particular. The Dutch have a ability, unlike any other nationality, to sound American as they were doing our English accents yeah. to a point where you cannot even tell that they are Dutch. Right. I don't know how they do it, but there are many examples of listening to Dutch people that you don't know are Dutch. <laughs> they are far, far and away way better than the Brits. I can't tell you exactly why. Maybe it has to do with the you know the sort of commonality right. between the Dutch language and the English that, language. I don't. Is know. Connie Nielsen Dutch or what is she? Dane. She's, She's Dane. Dane. Yeah, because I mean that performance in uh, I don't know if you've seen um, Demon Lover by Asaias. Uh wait no 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 I I saw uh Departure Gate okay That's oh Boarding Gate yeah which was the one Boarding after Gate, that yeah um yeah. but Demon Lover is another movie which a lot of people hate. Uh, it's, it's, it, uh, I mean, I think most people would even consider that to be, uh, Asaias's worst movie, but I loved it. And her performance in it is just incredible because it is multilingual and accentless. Like, that's the amazing thing. Well, that guy, Nicholas, Nikolai Koster Val. Oh, yes. Who was one, he, he has, I mean, look, it's not, it's not totally perfect, but he's one of those Danes that gets there close. Right. Uh, that guy Pilu Osbeck, who was in a, a bunch of great Danish TV shows, he was in Borten, which is that government. That's the West, the Danish West Wing in Copenhagen, and he was uh, he played Euron Greyjoy in um, uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Gotcha. It's, it's like there's just like some of those guys get through, but if you look at American TV right now, there's a show called Evil, which is made by the um, the Good Wife people, and the lead actress is this woman named Katja Herbers, and she's she's from Amsterdam, and she's doing American TV, and nobody has any idea that she's not American because she's so lockstep about it, you know, like her, her <laughs> accent. You know, I mean, yeah. you go back to Rutger Hauer, mm. like Rutger Hauer sounded weird in a weird way, yeah. but not 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 American weird, just sort of lyrically, tonally weird, right. Yeah. Don't ask me how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, and you bringing up uh Nikolai Koster Waldo. 
um, or Valdo, however you pronounce it, um, Jamie Lannister. Uh, there, there was an early film he made way before he was on Game of Thrones called Night Watch. Have you heard of it? Was that the one by um, the, the 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 Russian director? Um, the, I think he was uh, he was Danish as well, Ole Bordenal or something. And um, oh, that okay. Yeah, There's a couple of movies called Night Watch. Yeah, right. no, no, I I know which movie you're talking about. That one's more like the vampire. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this one actually, it, it's funny. He was one of those directors. He kind of did a George uh, Sluzer or whoever that is who made The Vanishing, where they allowed him to to do an American remake of his own movie, and um, uh, the the remake starred uh, Ewan McGregor. That I re- I remember that that with Nick and uh, uh, Nolte. Nick Nolte was. Oh the damn! Yeah. I didn't even know. I haven't seen the remake, but the I haven't seen either. Yeah, so oh I just, man! I just know well, the premise of it is incredible because. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I've mentioned this before in previous episodes. I don't normally get scared by movies. Like uh, horror movies don't have much of an effect on me, but this one like scared the shit out of me because it was just so simple. It was like this idea that this guy has to do like you know night shift at a morgue, and you know he has to like check in at every like there's there's he clocks in at every like station. Yeah. at the morgue to make sure that he's still there basically so he winds it's a really old school device where he winds a key and uh it's kind of a, a throwaway joke at the beginning where they say he asks like why is there a bell you know um by each of these cadavers and then it's yeah. like well you know they might still be alive you know they might <laughs> ring the bell you know yeah, <laughs> they'll let you know right. and that just that premise alone like scares the shit out of me <laughs> like i don't yeah. want to be hearing a bell ringing and you know it's just funny because we've had that ambient noise of bells ringing in your background <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> that's true hey by the way you want a linkage uh this this night watch has this actor named sophie grubble okay she she was the woman in the house that jack built who had the two sons that were killed by uh uh, they were sniped in that field. Matt they Dillon. Oh shit! That yeah. scene is insane. <laughs> it's fucking nuts. Yeah. It is fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that, I guess that's another thing I've been thinking about lately because you know how in video games, like it's a big no-no to kill kids, but movies, man, like you remember? Because uh, I guess this is another <laughs> curmudgeonly thing about me. I hate kids in movies. Like I, yeah, like you know, it, my level is like W. C. Fields level of like yeah. hating kids in movies like they, they're always like the the reason why somebody gets killed is because of a kid <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I i hate it when that happens you know uh you know there's, there's there's obviously a few exceptions you know there's some kids that are good um usually evil kids <laughs> I like evil kids yeah. like um actually uh an example I, one of my favorite like child performances is actually um uh in um my little loves by um uh Jean Eustache, who most people don't even know his other movies aside from Mother and the Whore. You know, that's mm-hmm. his most famous movie. But he made this other movie after that called My Little Loves, which is, I think, actually better than um, Mother and the Whore. And the the main child actor in it, I who I think never did another movie. Uh, that was his only film is brilliant in it. But that's those are the rare exceptions. <laughs> um, but yeah, going back to... Um, to away with words uh it's funny when you sent me this uh this interview with chris doyle like the very first thing he says is like fuck you to the critics (laughs) and he says go home and change your nose (laughs) because it's still your father's (laughs) nose Uh, it's like where does that come from (laughs) 
It's got to be a Chinese expression. Yeah, something. yeah. yeah and, that, that doesn't quite translate. Right. And, the, you know, he's just on the defensive right away about being compared to Wong Kar Wai. And, um, and it's just like, yeah, he says, well, obviously I'm going to have it because I've worked with him for the past 10 years. Um, and you can see it. It's like the making love to the jukebox, which happens in mm-hmm. <laughs> Fallen Angels and in Chongqing Express. And even the the idea of the the white man like owning a bar, you know, there's also a character like that in Chongqing Express who um he, he but his kind of fetish is like uh Chinese women wearing blonde wigs, you know. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny cuz also in Chongqing Express they call him Guailo, which means a uh, white devil. <laughs> 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 so um so yeah, like he he's already like um uh on the defensive with critics and the irony is he co-wrote the movie with a critic, Tony Raines. Yeah, I mean, looking at that guy, yeah, I never heard of him before, but it's like, that is a, uh, it's, I mean, I, I assume there's a reason why that's who he picked to be a collaborator on this. Yeah, thing. I mean, Tony Raines is one of my favorite critics. Like, actually, I'm, I'm going to do a reveal on this episode. I am actually not Tony Raines on uh, on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> you know how the, the, there's those accounts like, like not Ignati Vishnevetsky, not Roger Ebert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. T- okay. Cool. Yeah, I'm not Tony Rains. Uh, that's me. But I I lost the login. I don't know what email and password <laughs> I use, so I, I haven't updated it in ages. But what I would do is I I would copy and paste his reviews from from Time Out. You know, because uh, I mentioned this before. Like I'm repeating myself, but uh, Time Out Film Guide was such an instrumental uh thing for me. Like when I was first starting to get into movies. And, you know, there would just be these capsule reviews. And then I found his other reviews on Sight and Sound, which has, like, the full, like, synopsis of movies. Mm-hmm. And he spoils them. Um, so, yeah, I, I would repost them on Letterboxd. And, yeah, he's he's gathered more of a following than I have. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, it's important to be liked, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Tony Raines, um, it's, it's fascinating because uh, he is also multilingual. He's a British man who... Um, who speaks uh, fluent uh, Cantonese and um, Mandarin, and he's actually worked on translations. Like, actually, a lot of the subtitles for Criterion for the movies that are Mandarin, he does the subtitles, especially the Edward Yang movies. And he is just, like, a great presence. Like, in terms of um, when there's an interview with him, I'll always watch that interview on, on, like, a special feature or if he does a commentary. And he does a great commentary for Chunking Express, which I'm really sad. Like when they released the Wong Kar Wai box set, they didn't include it with the Chunking Express disc. Like they dropped it. I don't know if the they the rights lapsed or anything. So I'm I'm gonna be hanging on to my DVD of Chunking Express. Um, uh, but yeah, like he he's a fascinating guy, and I I just remember one of the one of his most memorable reviews, which relates to this movie, and I guess kind of informed my viewing of it. Um, was that uh. A lot of people contend with it where he had this interpretation of um, uh, the killer, you know, the John Woo movie, um, that uh, it was like a homoerotic film that basically, um, I, I forgot the name of the the other actor who isn't Chow Yun-Fat, mm-hmm. um, Danny Lee. Yeah, Danny Lee falls in love with <laughs> with, with Chow Yun-Fat. And I, I just remember people bristling against that, especially like... Um, uh, this one critic I like who's uh, he did actually the essay for Throwdown uh, the Criterion release and he has a podcast as well the George Sanders podcast uh, Sean 
I'm blanking on his last name. He's a, he's a dad from from Seattle, <laughs> and he's a great guy. Uh, but he he contends against that. That he's just like it's not it's not a homoerotic film. Like there's there's no like subtext of that in this film, you know. Um, and it, that's the thing. The 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 main location where uh, away from words takes place is away with words is is this gay bar. You know, uh, with uh, you mentioned uh, Kevin um, Holmes being the proprietor, and he's even listed as the proprietor on the title card. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I guess you know when we were saying like um, how you were gripping it with with fingers, this was where I also had difficulty with it that it it wouldn't leave that location. You know that we were just like stuck there for most of the time, and like it was just such a relief to like go to um, to the memories. Which were right. the most experimental parts of the movie, which I loved, especially the memory where they go to the theme park, and you know they're riding the 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 roller coaster, and they have the the, the miniature slide, yeah, and the miniature version of the landmarks of the world, and it, it it just put into context to me like how Tokyo and Hong Kong both play this role of the cities that um, simulate the rest of the world, so you don't have to leave. You know, you want waves. <laughs> <laughs> you want waves. We'll we'll simulate waves. We'll we'll create a theme park that has fake waves for you to surf in and splash around in. Or you know, you want to see the Eiffel Tower? Here's the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> you don't need to go see it. Well, did they yeah. say that the bar was actually Kevin Sherlock's in real life? Or was that, I mean, the location had so many strange little details to it. You know, like they they, they said the divan or the the the, the couches. They kept it was at least two or three references that they felt like peahen feathers, and, and it's true because they did have the same purple. I, it, I'm sure they were not made of peahen feathers, right? But considering that, um, like the edge of it was actually busted and frayed, like there was some like heavy gauge stitching holding the stuffing in. Yes, it yes, was a that's very lived-in bar, and I, no yeah. doubt that it was a real place they were using as oh, a yeah. location after hours for sure. And uh, a lot of the the clients of that bar are probably the the real clientele of the yeah. bar um yeah, yeah, yeah. Mid, midriff wearing uh yeah, gay <laughs> the way, doing their thing. yeah right uh cross-dressing as well um mm-hmm. and yeah like actually that, that was one of the parts though that did resonate with me was was how comfortable he was in that chair um because uh there was a time actually where i was trying to look for the most comfortable place to sit in New York City, you know, so I could just read, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. um, yeah, I barely stayed in my apartment because obviously I had roommates, so I wanted to get away from that. So my my solution was to find that place outside and I would travel and I eventually settled on a place that actually wasn't too far from where you um used to live in, uh, in the financial district. What was uh, it? I'm curious um, now. I'm I'm blanking on the name of the hotel because I just called it the Dolphin Hotel, okay. but it was also it was a multi-purpose building. It had like a Shake Shack on the first floor, yeah, and then um, a Regal on the top floor. Mm-hmm. You probably know what I'm talking about. This the Regal was like the best movie theater in in New York City. Yeah, yeah, I think I yeah I do think I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. you go there like you know those who know know that like you can go there on opening day. And the theater will be completely empty. There's nobody there to it ruin. It was not their... a film. They're not a film fan neighborhood. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You could definitely get a late <laughs> ticket in that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, and like uh, people didn't know that it existed. That was the other thing because it was on the top floor of a hotel. Like uh, most did, people. Didn't we do a podcast on those divans there? By the way, you brought your your uh, you brought your uh, recorder. I think we mm-hmm. actually did a show up there on one of those couches. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Oh man, uh, I'm I'm throwback. blanking now. Throwback, yeah, throwback, yeah. man. <laughs> 
Yeah, because it, it's near where you lived, so I would imagine we probably did. Uh, yeah, it was a 20-minute have, walk from where I was. Yeah, I have to look up the, the archives. I mean, what did we even talk about? <laughs> Boy, I, I remember the conversation, but I don't remember what it was because it was so sprawling. But we were sitting on one of those circular couches, and they were, now that you say that, they were very comfortable. And it was that, uh, I think it was like the Hilton over in the Fly Die on the river there. It was right by yes. like, the, uh, the Irish Potato yeah. Monument. Yeah, and right. then like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Because um, <clears throat> when you looked up, there was this like weird, like harp sculpture yeah yeah Yeah. and it's funny because you know the the way the corridors were in the hotel it reminded me a lot of the the corridors in uh since you're an austin fan um force majeure Mm -hmm. yeah oh in in the lodge yeah okay yeah 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 so um yeah oh man i i didn't even remember that i brought you there that's amazing (laughs) yeah that was a good i mean now it all it's like years later it it all makes sense it comes together but right yeah yeah i I mean i I definitely have to go back there and that's where the Tribeca Film Festival was. That was the screen site for pretty much. It was that in the oh. old, uh, the one up on, um, what not, uh, Jesus, uh, right, right below, uh, right below the the tunnel, right above the tunnel entrance. Yeah, I know they, what the other talking about. Yeah, they closed that. That doesn't exist anymore. So it's oh, all downtown. Sad. I know it's a real place, yeah. It's I I used to work around there. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, my job was right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Oh man, but I yeah, know. like yeah. So being comfortable in a seat. I mean, I wish. You know, he he's brought some reading materials at one point as well. <laughs> yes. yes, he is. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he doesn't really read. Like, he kind of just dabbles. And, like, I guess the third book that he's given is, like, a gay porn mag. I'm not sure. Because he's like, what is this? <laughs> um, but, yeah, just him being stuck in a place. Like, I guess I like being dynamic and moving, constantly moving. Uh, I don't like being stuck in a single place, especially in a movie or God forbid a TV season. Oh my God, Bill. Like this is like one of the banes of my uh, existence is uh, <laughs> is the TV trope of like the character imprisoned for the entire season. And, you know, it's just like them trying to find a way to escape and every episode just drags on and on of them just like being imprisoned. Like, I fucking hate that. think of The Handmaid's Tale. I think. Oh, is that what happens? Well, that was one of those prestige shows where it started off with a bang and and the source material is great. And it's like, except it's like as a show, it had zero budget and they really were forced to every single episode was a jar episode or a bottle episode, whatever whatever you call it. Oh, right. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the the examples I think of is um, uh, Search Party. There was a season of Search Party that was like that. And I liked Search Party because it is one of those shows that I hate all the characters Mm-hmm. And that's why I like watching it. Like these are people I would never be friends with in New York City. Yeah. But yeah, I like watching the show. You know? Yeah, it's like uh, Mike Lee with his uh, upper class characters. And that's the bro- yeah. That's like it's like girls, except more openly hostile to the characters. Yes, you were, you were they were designed to not like anyone who wasn't Ali Shawkat. I think right, exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, the second se- season of Mr. Robot did that as well, okay. and I was just like so frustrated. That's, that's a modern TV trope of just running out of cash and saying we're mm-hmm. going to give you a second season, but your budget is now uh, two thirds of what it was <laughs> in the first season. That's that's all that is. I mean, uh, yeah, that's why there's so many bad second seasons, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, you're pitching the game against these people, right? You know, like um, they just, yeah, you're, it's, it's tilted against them. Yeah, the rare exception though, Fargo season two, like excellent season of TV. I, you know what, I watched most of season one. I, I pitched out, and Fargo mm-hmm. season two was that the Ted Dan- no Ted Danson was uh, season one, I think. Uh, no, he's season two. Oh, that was season. Yeah, two. Okay. it's it's uh, Patrick Wilson, Ted Danson, uh, Kristen Milotti, Milioti, and um, uh, uh. 
oh my god, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Bukim Woodbine. Oh my oh, god, that was the Bukim Woodbine season. Okay, yeah, such an excellent performance. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. There's no British people in uh, <laughs> in season two. That's the flaw of of one and three. They have British people. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was gonna say because Bukim Woodbine. Uh, no, I was gonna say I think he's. I can't remember where he's from, but it wasn't uh, wasn't Minnesota. But I guess that's the whole point. It was all uh, fish out of water stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you get more of his backstory in in season four. Um, you kind of figure that out eventually because of the the time frame, but um, uh, but yeah, there, there's just this great moment, like this scene. You can find it on YouTube where he's talking to Patrick Wilson, and it's um, he's talking about like how polite white people are, you know, and it's like how how mean they are while they're being polite. Like it's just such an incredible scene, and like Patrick Wilson can't say anything to it, like you know, uh, <laughs> it's just like yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, you know, here's it's funny you mentioned the idea of being trapped in this room. Uh, you know, and, and it is true. A lot of this movie takes place um, inside. It's it is almost like there's very little that's not the bar and the couches and the stage yeah. area. It's almost like a T. It's like I think it's set up like a T joint. So it is very modest right. Chinese space. And you know, like anytime you catch something with a camera, it does add a, a more degree to it, especially the way Doyle uses those. Um, uh, the lenses have a little bit of vignetting. Uh, it, it, it's a wide-angle lens, so it definitely opens it up a little bit. Um, I got some impression, especially watching the EPK, like you said. He was running the camera himself, which makes Absolutely. sense. You yeah, know, that's what he wants to do. Uh, if you, you know, like when you watch Petra Kant and you watch Michael Ballhouse eat or, or use every single part of the buffalo, like I am amazed that I sat through the bitter tears of Petra von Kant and and. I I knew this was a homework film. I'm not the biggest fast bender guy. Bender, bender? No, it's Bender. It's fast bender. Bender, bender. It is. Oh, he's the yeah, bender. Okay. Bender is uh, Michael. Michael. Yeah. Okay. So I yeah I mean I, I come and go with him. You know I liked uh, what is it Ali fear eat your mother that kind of thing is is all right. But it's like watching um watching Petra Kant. I'm like I know what this is going to be. This is two hours or two fifteen of just in one room or no two two adjoining rooms. And nothing more than that. And sure as fuck, Michael Ballhouse and you know, Fastbender, I can't I can't leave him out of this because he's a director, managed right. to shoot almost like not not a single angle twice in, in this very limited box, two boxes, wow. two adjoining boxes. And I mean that's not what happened at this movie, but I, I, I'm a believer after that point that the correct cinematographer could just simply take the most humble of places. And if you're ever gonna like if you were ever gonna shoot uh, no exit by Sartre. I think you would have had to like pull Michael Ballhouse out of the grave at his prime to shoot the one. <laughs> oh, room he's dead now. Oh in. man. Oh, did, yeah, Ball, didn't Ballhouse die like last year or something? Like oh that? man, that sucks. I don't uh, want to. I don't want to be a fucking dick here about yeah. that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, let me fact check that before I say that. But like, there is a you know there there is a thing to being able to just cover. A, yeah, he died in 2017. Sorry, yeah. 2017. Right. Yeah, to cover a very modest space inside and to like press every angle as if there could be new suspense in that sort of thing. I mean, this again, that's not what this did, but I could see like I, now my mind is open to the to the you know the possibilities of a real good cameraman understanding how to play the inside of a thing. You know, and one of the notes I had about this, by the way, is that you know, and and to to you know recapitulate the idea of the Wong Kar Wai influence. I think of Wong Kar Wai movies as uh, moist, humid Hong Kong nights 
with heavily, heavily fluorescently overhead lit tableaus of people eating noodles out of bowls, uh, sure. you know, and tile walls. Neon lit. Sometimes neon, but but fluorescence is certainly, you know, the idea that it's not, it's not incandescent. You don't have the filament bulbs. It's, it's definitely gas, flickering gas with all that problems that it creates for cameras. And, you know, there's a lot of that here. I mean, there's a lot of the noodle bars that's just part of Hong Kong. But when you get that wall with like there's a back wall of seafoam green tile and there's a guy that comes out. You don't you don't know. Is this an abattoir? Is this an emergency room? Is this a noodle house? And it turns out it's a noodle house because the guy (laughs) comes out with bowls of food for them. Yeah. And I mean, it's you know, that's the the idea of it's like I you know, it, it becomes exotic with a lowercase e for someone like me who's never been to Hong Kong wondering, I don't know where I am right now. I have no sense of geometry, no sense of scale. What I do know about this is my impression, the handshake deal I made with Wong Kar Wai when I started watching his movies, where I just felt like everything cool happened at night, happened in places I didn't know, and you wanted to be friends with his characters because you got for sure they would take you to a great little place. You would get the best bomb-ass piece of pork, and then something really sexy or romantic or elusive would happen <laughs> right after that in something neon lit. Yeah. Like that's, that's the dream of pre-handover Hong Kong that you want. And this movie, to me, really almost felt like a last sigh to quote the the Jean Pierre Melville, the what is it? Uh, uh, what it was the second breath or last breath? I think mm-hmm. it was one of those second breath. Yeah, second breath. Yeah, that's that's what this felt like. Is like the party is the party's almost on its way out, and of course it only the party went to shit in the last two years once Beijing starts putting their foot on on Hong Kong's neck. But I mean, when the, when the handover happens, you know that at a certain point the party is over. There was this great. You know, all the queers were free to do what they wanted to do, and it's yeah. a real liber- libertine city of all these people. And it's just, you know, it's it's got a finite lifespan, which is sad. It's elegiac, you know. It's bittersweet. It's all those things. Yeah, and uh, you know, if people want to see like a follow up to it, like just watch the the parts unknown episode where Chris Doyle shot it. He <laughs> shot it. I did not know yeah. until I read his. Yeah, I was like, I can't. He shot it. That makes sense. He makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who else would you get, right? And does he still live in that apartment? <laughs> like, that's the other thing that I'm wondering. Because <laughs> you know, his apartment was used for um for Chunking Express. It's the one yeah. that's off of that really long escalator. Yeah. And um, he said like a lot of his CDs were stolen <laughs> during that time that they were shooting there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I imagine he's he's still there. He's still living there. He fell in love with the city. And, but yeah, it, it's definitely changed because the that idea that you proposed is like it's very seductive. And I kind of fell into it when I had a like a twenty hour layover in Beijing, you know. And I thought I was gonna have the same experience, but I ended up getting scammed instead. Oh you know? shit! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the tea scam. No, not that particular one I've never heard of before. Oh, yeah. So uh, they warn people about it at the hotels, but they don't warn you about it at the airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's basically like um, you'll get approached by two people who probably speak English very well. And then they, they give you this guise as if like they're um, they're going to show you around. But really what they do is they take you to a tea room which in in my case was like somebody's dining room. <laughs> uh, but they happen to have like that, that plastic stand that says like, we accept Visa, Discover, blah, blah, oh, blah. Okay. Yeah, 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 so yeah. that legitimizes it. Yeah, sure. And then they basically serve you tea. And then when, you know, the bill comes around, they expect you to pay for it. Oh, so what are we, what, what, what kind of scam, like what's the scale of the scam? Um, it, It's basically um taking money from you. How, but how much, how much money is what I'm saying? Um, like uh, I mean, they 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 tried to swindle me for 140 bucks. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, and what I did was like I was in that experience of basically like uh, this is a good story, so I'm gonna just uh, roll with it. And okay. I knew because I I used my Discover card because it doesn't have fees internationally, yeah, and I knew that right. Discover had my back. So uh, as soon as I got home, I called Discover and said, "Hey, I got scammed. Like, can you give me my money back?" And they gave it back to me. So can I, can I tell you about yeah. my scam? It's, yeah, what happened? I'm sorry, this is completely disconnected, but it just drags my memory. Well, when I went to, uh, I traveled in Egypt by myself in 2018. And I mean, this is sort of one of those bucket list trips. And I, I, I did some diving in the Red Sea, which is a place you need to go if you like scuba diving. And then I went up the Nile and I finished it off in Cairo. But, you know, I, I was, uh, I went up a riverboat through the Nile. So Valley of the Kings, let's cut to the chase. Valley of the Kings, this is a place that's legendary. Uh, I was I was by myself, but I had a guide. Um, you know, part of the package was that I was um, there was a Luxurian who I was like partnered with, and I was like his charge for the charge. He was really, really, I mean, real sweet guy. We're still friends on Facebook today. Complete pro, you know, absolutely great. I I am, am forever in his debt that he was my docent through the through the Nile. Anyway, I would go down to the tombs myself. And when mm. you go to the tombs, there are these guys, the uh, the sort of one piece, uh, the, the sort of um, long uh, dressing gown that the men wear is called a guliabia in, in, yeah. in Arabic. And so, you know, there are these guys who are down there and, they, you know, they're they're wearing a very um, modest thing and they look like they're they work for the, you know, the antiquities department. And every time they would see a guy like me, look, I'm 6'3", I'm white, I got <laughs> rosy red cheeks, I got a bald spot on the back of my head, I look like a swell, okay? You thing. look like Tintin. I look like Tintin, <laughs> yes. yeah, I do. <laughs> I don't have a captain a, who's my best friend. Yeah, you're a Hergé uh, come to life. <laughs> <laughs> but I look, I, I get this, that's my job, I'm supposed to look like, uh, I'm a, I'm a flare, I'm a rescue flare. And I'm prepared for this. And so the thing is, the Egyptian dude who honestly looks like he's not had two square meals, uh, you know, within three days apart for the last 15 years, he says, like, he's in the corner. The guy kind of comes over to me. He sidles up and he starts describing, the, he starts translating the hieroglyphs for me, telling me the story of what the alligator and the hippo does. And then he waves his hand. He goes, here, come over here. Take a look at this. And he pulls the barrier aside and brings me to a chamber that's not open to the public. Ooh. And he's showing me that, you know, it's an empty tomb, but yes. there's other things that's like, I'm the only person there. It's me and this dude. This this, And he speaks perfect English. Okay. And I know what this is. I know what this is. This is, they put that little gate there strictly to let me behind it so that when I get out of it, the guy kind of makes the little money thing with his fingers. Mm. And I can't, I can't argue with it. And so what I do is I, I pull 20 US out of my wallet, <laughs> put it in, I roll it up, put it in his palm. And that happened at every single tomb I went to in the Valley oh, of the Kings. wow. No, here's the thing. I understand, first of all, that I'm not I'm not downplaying 20 U.S. However, for right. me, tw- 20 U.S. meant a lot less to me than it did to him. Sure. And I came up and I was telling my guide, it's like, it happened again. It happened again. Because, you, know, you know, you don't have to give him that. In fact, you can report that guy to the police. I'm like, oh, my mm-hmm. God. I There's no way yeah. I am going to, like, dime that guy. It's like that 20 bucks. Like, he needs the 20 bucks. And it's like. I, I'm more blase about it. I, right. Anyway, I know it was a scam and I kept I kept getting into it and I couldn't <laughs> say no because I would be a shitty tourist if I didn't oh, like go man. through the gate when he opened it. And it's like, well, I got to give you 20 US or right. thereabouts. But yeah, it was just like, that's one of those mm-hmm. things where I knew what was happening. And like you, it's like, this is a story. This is yeah. a life experience. <laughs> also, it's like, honestly, I owe Egypt 20 US per head. Honestly, the colonial <laughs> yeah. mentality, I owe them that. Yeah. <laughs> It's um your white man's burden. 
It is. <laughs> I, that, that's just one of the many white men's burden along the way. Oh man, yeah. I, I feel like this this scene that you just described is going to show up in the next uh, the James Mangold uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I can imagine. It's going to be there. Yeah, and it's crazy too. Like I I, I thought of that as well. Like uh, because. The next place I headed after the scam was basically the the tourist office because I needed also to find out how to get back to the airport because my yeah. money was gone. <laughs> so uh, you know, and it was it was one of those lucky things where you know the the ticket gives you one last free ride. You know, <laughs> so I was able to make it back to the airport. Otherwise, I would have just asked them, "Hey, can I just get a ticket to get back to the airport?" But um, long story short, I could have reported them too. But I didn't because, uh, well, one, you know, they probably had run away afterwards. They wouldn't have stuck around, even though, you know, these businesses, because it was, they actually took me to two places. They took me to that tea house and then they took me to a a karaoke bar. And that's when I told them I don't have any more money and they kicked us out. Um, But uh, these places are obviously brick and mortar places. So the authorities can show up there. And I learned later on that if you report something like that, like the punishment is like brutal. Like, it's yeah. like they get sent to, like, a camp or something, like, uh, maybe concentration camp. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, you can't, like, because uh, I was also afraid I was might have gotten kidnapped, but they can't do that stuff because the penalties are really severe um, in China if yeah, you're uh, I mean, caught. I just, I just felt all sorts of, like, this is everything. Just me being here is a bad look as it's just a gigantic, tall, pink-faced white man. I'm like, <laughs> I really got to trip. This is the world of the brown man. Everyone yeah. around. I was the only, like, at that point, and to be honest, people still aren't, have not flocked back to Egypt. Like, I was the only white person for miles in any direction at any one point. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm look, I like I said, I'm 6'3". I sort of mm. feel like I... Whatever energy I project, fear is not part of it. But I also I have to be very responsible of what happens when I'm in a place. I yeah. I owe I owe everybody quite a bit. Yeah, Marcus is the same way. It's like there's there's just a lot of responsibility being six three. It is. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> Something I don't have to worry about being five ten. <laughs> yeah. Except when I go home. Like when I go back to the Philippines, I stand out. <laughs> you're the you're the king of the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here I'm just average. <laughs> so um. Uh, I just have like a few more random notes here f- about the movie um, that I wrote down. Like the needle drop for Sugar Water by uh, Chibo Mato was fantastic. I mean, I love that song. Um, it's the one where basically he's he's losing himself in the waves, and he yeah. he, he actually points out that that's his favorite track on the the jukebox. I mean, it was great visually and, mm. and and hourly. It was the strongest part of the movie, and it, it's a great way to end strong. Yes, sure. that's what I felt too. Like I was like, if it ended here, that's the perfect ending right there, you know, because the song feels like it's wrapping things up. And then um, I, I don't know if you've seen the Michelle Gondry music video for the song. No. Oh, no, you have to see it, Bill. And anybody okay. else who's listening who hasn't seen it, see that music video because it's like an incredible technical feat. It basically is um, two. It's a split screen video where two time frames are happening. So one is moving forward and one is moving backwards, and they meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it was Tenet before Tenet. <laughs> or uh, it sounds like a De Palma, an unmade De Palma movie. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But yeah, it's incredible. And then um, it also pointed out because even the English in the movie is subtitled, right? Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, sure. it, it even subtitles song lyrics. And. Uh, that was one of the ones where I was like, okay, th- it's funny because, you know, Tony Raines does English translations for subtitles and the, the translations for this, the irony is that it's full of typos. Yeah. Intentionally? <laughs> like, uh, that I don't know. 
Yeah, that I don't know well, because well, you know, one of my questions was that um, a lot of times when uh, Tadanobu Asano was speaking, mm-hmm. the, the, my my sub like I think I, either I was using the file you gave me or the one I found. Uh, I, but again, it doesn't matter either way. Um, you know, I see a lot of dodgy subs just mm-hmm. where sure. I'm in Europe of Dutch films and things like that. And you know, I know I like the whole idea is like, well, is this a get the gist kind of thing, or is this literally what somebody meant was to include the sort of deviation and corruption of language? Yeah, I mean, the whole message of this movie is that language is um, meaningless, right? But like Tadanobu Asanu was giving a lot of gibberish. That there's a difference between disconnected words that don't make sense and then like verb noun tense disagreements, which sure. also <laughs> which also create. But I mean, it, like that creates an environment of incomprehension. Yeah. Uh, but I, again, it's like, I don't know which was which in terms of this is a yeah. transliteration of the errors or was this the error that arose from a transliteration to English? It's, yeah. you know, a little bit of chicken and egg going right. on. Right. This is why I had you as a guest for this bill, okay. because, you know, you notice these things, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, especially now we're in an age where, you know, language is evolving so, to some people. It's breaking down. And, uh, you know, they, they think it's, it's, uh, it, um, you know, it's hell freezing over or whatever, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, the, like, yeah, it, it evolves, you know, that's really the thing about it. And, um, I would like to think it's intentional, but, um, there were just certain parts where I was like, eh, maybe, um, I mean, it works to me. It works best intentional. I was in a universe where I kept saying, this needs to it, it the core of this movie is more true to itself it is if it's playing these games with Tadanobu Asano's recall of language and it wasn't just you know because there was the uh the there was a couple of still screens where it was like bar plus man equals like fuck yeah you know there was like <laughs> like some of that stuff was i know that right. was um i think that was trying to like game um english to chinese maybe in terms of paper yeah literal but, translations you know correct yeah 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 the p- pinion or whatever it is mm-hmm. along yeah. the way and i i like okay well if we're gonna do that then that makes sense that um his Japanese would also be kind of like bulky and, and, uh, you know, weird associations, quasi, you know, quasi comprehensible forms of sentences that just sort of break down in terms of verb, verb, uh, noun agreement or tense agreement. Yeah. And I mean, some of my favorite like plays on languages that also sound grammatically correct and are funny are comes from like the LGBT community. You know, oh, yeah. especially in the yeah. Philippines, like they are fantastic with word wordplay, you know. Yeah. And then obviously there's that website that um, I was a big fan of. I don't know if it still exists. It was called English oh, with I've an R. Yeah, oh my yeah, yeah, god, yeah. Bill, it's amazing, and it it really is legit. Because when I went to Beijing, when I got scammed, there are English English signs yeah. <laughs> everywhere. Well, of course there is. Yes. <laughs> And it's fantastic. And yeah, the the thing in the subtitle, typo or intentional, whatever it may be that stood out to me was in the sugar water um, scene, which basically, it, and it, it's like a typo that you did not need to make. So maybe it is intentional because it, it keeps mentioning black cat, uh-huh. but it, it in the subtitles, it said black Kate with an E at the end, <laughs> you huh. know? Yeah. yeah. And then I obviously made me think of um, Kate Blanchett, who I like to call Cat Blanket. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was like perfect. I was like, yeah, that that's yeah. So uh, let's just say, for all intents and purposes, it was intentional. Yeah, they, they, like Pee Wee Herman, they meant to do that. Yeah, 
Another one that was like a, a weird play that was eerily prescient was um. Did you notice this one? The a jab is not a shot, and yeah. then he talks oh, about yeah, immunization yeah, yeah. and all of that. And there's no reason why that wouldn't have been the same mode in '98, or I guess he shot this in '97 for '98 distro, right? With thereabouts, yeah. I mean, but that's you know that's that's an uh, an ethos that's as old as the hills. People have been bitching about this shit. <laughs> Since they were putting the fucking uh, polio vaccine on sugar cubes and making right. people eat it, you know, in 1943 <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah, right. I, I don't think that would have changed. And a jab is not a shot. Well, because they were talking about punching. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that that of course is the same thing. You could you could make it into a boxing terminology where sure. you know, a jab a jab is in fact a shot when you talk about punching. But we call, especially in our post-vaccinated world, you know, that that is the needle prick is a jab. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Jacob Rivera, by the way, boxing. So yeah. <laughs> I gotta yeah, give a yeah, shout look. out. To, yeah, and I word think up, he, word up, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, what's up, Jacob? He also actually gave us a shout out um, on uh, on a boxing podcast. He mentioned that to me, so thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, we we have a the the English guys film eighty nine. We have a um, a WhatsApp group. Oh, that, okay. uh, it's yeah, it's like a it's like a if we don't have Slack, but it winds up becoming a communication channel, and it's it's uh, Sky Wingfield from Film eighty nine. Neil Gaskin, myself, John Arminio, who's our old friend from yeah. uh, the New York, the Pennsylvania area, but he's on our podcast. Matthias yeah. and Jacob. Jacob is the California guy holding up. He's he's hours and hours behind us, so it's really tough to right. get into the flow of convo. Yeah, he's he's a very busy man. I've been trying to get him to be a guest on the show too, but uh, yeah, we're, we're we can't seem to get the schedules to align. You know what? I actually when I the I went to L.A. in uh, the last time I was in L.A. was early nineteen. I knew I was coming mm. to Holland, and so I set up a meeting. We we put up a dinner at the, right outside the the uh, right outside the Culver the Sony Lot on Culver. Mm-hmm. There's a restaurant which is in essentially Flynn's Arcade from Tron is a oh. restaurant really. Yeah, no, it's great. So Becky Deanna, who of course was a wrong real regular, Jacob showed up there and so did Kyle Reardon. So I, I got to knock off a bunch of California people. Nice. Once, which is, yeah, was, I'm very happy about that. All right. Well, I, I got to be included in that the next time. Next time. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> next time we'll get you there. Yeah. I, I mean, because, yeah, the people you mentioned, a lot of them are also like my mutual follows on, on yeah, Twitter, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I've never met them. You know, like I've never met Kyle or, or Becky. You know, yeah. so and yeah, Jacob. It's it's just been text. Oh, actually, no. Wait a minute. Strike that. I met Jacob because he he went to New York and he actually did one of the trivia nights with us. So God damn. So he came to New York. I didn't meet him, but I, when I went to fucking uh, all right, then I met him there. All right. Yeah, yeah. And he did um he did a wrong reel episode, I believe, in person. So. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get Matthias van der Roost, who's never been to America. Like that would be the ultimate thing for me would be to get him to come to. I mean, to do it, do an episode live, but to meet all these people, to meet Jamie, to meet like Kakado and Marcus. That would That'd be, be like, amazing. Truly, East meets West, rival nations. Yeah, and the, then he'll he'll recognize all the Dutch names in New York. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Vanderbilt. Have, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll recognize the Dutch <laughs> yeah. names in New York. Yeah, even Utrecht. Like I think about New Utrecht. You know, yeah. when you mentioned that, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> that's yeah, where man. it's from. Absolutely. Man. All right. Um, yeah. So, do you have any other thoughts you want to share about um, uh, away with words, Bill? Well, again, I think the you know like the, the two different charismas in terms of your leading men uh, from Tadanobu Asano, who now is you know, a statesman amongst actors, especially from Japan. Yes. Having done plenty of English language work. And again, he's not even 50. So he is eminently hireable. Um, I know that, uh, Jesus, I can't remember his name. The other actor has jumped ahead in terms of the guy. He's in Bullet Train. He was in Logan. This other Uh, Japanese actor. Andrew Koji. 
No, no, not him. Not him. the other guy. Oh, the guy who's in Westworld. You mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he is like now become like the the Japanese guy they cast to play all the stately men. <laughs> he's almost exactly. like he's almost like the the new um uh uh, set, uh, set, uh, uh what am I thinking of uh, Seven Samurai uh Kurosawa's guy. Uh- Oh man, uh, Mifune. Know, yeah, he's almost like the new Mifune, even though he—I mean—he yeah. has a similar uh, charisma to it. Mifune was easier going. Anyway, yeah. So, like, there's opportunities for him. However, um, as as much as he was the focus of the leading man, like when you bring a non-actor like Sherlock, this guy, and I googled him. He's not anywhere. Mm. You can't find him. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's a friend of uh, Doyle. He was the same thing. He was an Aussie who, you know, plied his fortunes in Hong Kong, which is a lot easier to do in the eighties and nineties. So I, the, 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 the slap of Aquavilva to my face of, of seeing him on the movie was that I got a very Ben Mendelssohn vibe. Right. He has the same exact speech impediment as Ben Mendelssohn does. You oh, know, he, really? He, the sibilance of... He, oh. there, there's an extra S, S in, there's in his uh, speech. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. It's funny. I, I only am familiar with sibilance because that's what people complain about on vinyl records all the uh, time. Well, and yeah. They're wrong, by the way, with the Wu-Tang uh, records. Like, people who complain about sibilance on Wu-Tang records, <laughs> you have never listened to Wu-Tang before. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you guys are talking out of your ass. I mean, I, I could be wrong in terms of what I'm describing. Uh, no, no, that, that's what it is. Oh, okay. It's the S yeah, uh, sound that you hear, yeah. Yeah, and so, mm-hmm. like, he has the sibilance. The voice, mm-hmm. the way his particular Aussie English is bent, and, and again, I don't know if the guy actually spoke any Cantonese or not. He was a completely mm-hmm. English performance. Uh, right. I like that his the sound of his voice was a uh, a warm clasp of the hand. Uh, yeah. There was, I mean, I I uh, this is the thing. Like in theory. I am not a fan of non-actors acting as much as some of my filmmaker friends love this idea that you, if you bring somebody as a non-actor, they say they are unstudied. Yeah. And what I think of it is like, well, they're unstudied. And also that winds up betraying itself within six seconds of asking them to do something. Sure. I, I, and it's like, I, again, I took an acting class. I did some acting. I was in one of my bullshitty short films on YouTube. I know how hard acting is. You can't, you can't ask a non-actor to do something you would ask an actor to do. And yet this guy clearly had enough charisma, enough life experience, enough aplomb that he nailed every single thing that uh, he was asked to do by Christopher Doyle. I mean, it, there was even one point where he is um it almost sounded like it was some of the stuff where Doyle was quizzing him off camera and they just use it in the edit. He says, I'm right. happy with who I am and what I am. And I'm like, oh, this is a man that didn't come across as a studied line. That came across as a queer dude who came up in a Catholic background in Australia, got the fuck out of New South Wales, went <laughs> to a went to a place where nobody knew about Catholic and was just able to be queer in um, the Blade Runner city, you know, just the place that's on the bleeding edge of the future. <laughs> right. And that's what you'd need to create a guy like Kevin Sherlock as a bar. And he's always dressed really well. You know, he, he's wearing these really great cut suits, uh, leather jackets, and he never seems like he doesn't have the answer to anything. Yeah. <laughs> and he always seems to be glued to the floor. Like there's yeah. so many scenes where he's like just... <laughs> prostrate oh, yeah. <laughs> or you open a door and he spills out of the door yeah, exactly. yeah. oh that's that's brilliant physical comedy by the way especially that scene where which i kind of felt was forced with the the little person and like this is you know um 
I don't think they needed that, but I guess he might have been part of the bar. Yeah. So they were just including him. But the the whole thing, I was like, it's it's not a cover charge. It's not a condom charge. It's a cover charge. <laughs> and he pays in condoms. Yeah, yeah he pulls <laughs> a condom in his pocket like it's a coin. Yeah. <laughs> and they're gold wrapped, by the way. I love seeing <laughs> the scene. It was an EPK again, where uh, mm-hmm. I'm having watched the scene where um, Kevin Sherlock spills out of the door and it follows him inside. Watching um, Doyle run the camera from a crouch where it is almost at waist level as it tracks behind Kevin Sherlock as he approaches the couch that Tadanobu Son was laid on. It, mm-hmm. it, again, it gave away the idea that, oh, I forgot this is a movie, but it, it also reveals the dimensionality to it and the craft, the technique of how much thought Doyle put into catching these guys. And it's like, it's right. great that he had these collaborators. He had somebody like Kevin Sherlock, a non-actor who like, even though he was playing himself, I could, if you told me, Hey Bill, let's play yourself. I'm like, I'm terrible at myself. It's going to look <laughs> fake and inauthentic and you're not going to want the result to be right. of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of also casting non-actors, but I also like keeping actors on their toes because, you know, I mean, my pick of the litter usually ends up being a lot of actors who are, are pretty green anyway. And it's just interesting to see, like, um, you know, how rooted they are in their training, you know, um, when they're like, uh, I've, I've, I've butted heads with some and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out because they're just so, like, used to, like, knowing where they are and where they're coming from, all these things. And like, I come from the school of like, well, can't you just come up with that on your own? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's you do your homework, you know, like Altman, you know, that, that, that's what Altman always said was like, people love working with me because I, I let them do the work, you know? And uh, I, I, I definitely subscribe to that, um, kind of school of directing. (laughs) I, yeah. You know, one of the things after acting, I took a, uh, I took a, it was a, I mean, not a pedagogy, but it was a directing workshop with this guy who ran uh, the Barrow Group in New York. This guy, Seth, ba- uh, Seth Barish, who's who's really, really good at what he does. He's a character actor, but he teaches better than he acts, I think. Um, anyway, so I did a 10-week master class on directing. And then it was like using the people from the acting workshop in our directing workshop. And so it was bumping into pedagogy in terms of what people did. And I remember saying... Um, I, I, this was this was a perfect example where I was trying to uh, direct. I they asked us, to, you know, you you pull an existing piece of text and you try to direct it the way you want to. I think right. I I pulled um, Giamatti's wine rant in um, Sideways. Sideways, yeah. yeah. When he makes Virginia Madsen kind of fall in love with him, and you know, I hate I, fucking Merlot. <laughs> I hate fucking no. It's the, he's he's sitting there saying oh. like, oh, the the grape is is pick. You know, he's describing himself. It's like the grape the grape is is, is finicky. The under the mm. perfect hand, it's like a real patient hand. You can get a real great expression. And and, and mm. Virginia Manson's like looking at him and saying, oh, you know, I really, what I really love about it is fucking delicious. And she tells the yep. story. Anyway, <laughs> I remember like describing to the guy what I wanted, and the directing teacher is looking at us. And I'm like, I want this. And I want this. And mm-hmm. the teacher, Seth Barish, looks at the actor and she goes, what did you hear when Bill said that? And the woman turned to me and she says, that's too much talking. I have no idea what he wants. And I felt really, <laughs> I felt really impugned. Oh, my God. Yeah. And because I'm like, well, it's like if I do anything in life, it's that I try to express myself to within an angstrom of precision. I'm like, I can't right. do better to express myself than the way I just did. Mm-hmm. And that's what I asked the teacher. I'm like, he goes, well, Bill, you, you buried her in words. You took away the feeling. You didn't give her anything to play. And my next question was, is there a way 
Like, can I ask the, the actor, like, you figure it, you figure it mm. out. I want you to play this. It's like, can you be the outboard imagination? This is the result I'm looking for. <laughs> I can't tell you how to come to it, but can you find a way to come to it? Yeah. And I, I think that brings us full circle to this movie because uh, for me, I yeah, I, I'm the opposite because I, and I mean, I was in that mode too before, but I think that um, I had to move away from it because there was just this growing boredom mm-hmm. of like, just direct translation where it was like, okay, this is what I wrote. This is what I imagined. And then it ends up being that, you know, which is like rare, right? Like most filmmakers don't end up with that, but because I had like very few moving pieces, I'm able to do it that way. But it was boring to me. Like uh, the result I, you know, like I, I actually lost a passion for making movies because I was making movies like that. Like I was like, what is this? Uh, that does not, that does not suit you. I mean, especially, no. you know, you, in front of ice rink, I remember you showed us one of your <laughs> longer cut pieces and I'm like, Oh, this yeah. is, this is what you were doing. And it, it would literally mm. suffocate you and put a tourniquet around your neck, cut up the air supply. <laughs> if we asked you to do things according to any other form of pedagogy, that would murder. Yes. You. Yeah, exactly. Uh, suffocation is, is the right word. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it really set me free. And it was funny because it wasn't even, like all the the points in my like I guess growth as a filmmaker has always been like somebody else showing me the way indirectly. It's like they they do something and like I'm like oh I can take that and then you know do it my own way and that that's how I've learned. Like I had an ex girlfriend who had no experience making films whatsoever, sent me a videotape where she basically edited it in camera. And it was like one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Like this single hour of mini DV tape of just like things that she liked. And I was like, man, that's so freeing that you're just filming what you're, you're, you like and it's beautiful. And, you know, it to me, it's still one of the most incredible like debut films ever made. And like there's a sample of it that used to be on Mubi uh, when it was called The Auteurs. But uh, I guess they deleted all their, their non-streaming um, titles now. But uh, I'd uploaded it there and I, I actually made friends because of it. But, you know, the only thing that I did was edit it. You know, it was yeah. her footage. But that that like started a new um, career for me. And I kind of uh, or not really career, but, you know, a new direction. And um, it was um, it kind of freed me in a way where I was like, yeah, my roots definitely are in documentary. Like, I like the idea of, you know, as you mentioned earlier, forming the film in the edit, which is yeah. what I feel documentary does more. You nice, find Nice it. callback, by the way. Way to bring around to the Telmas. Yeah, yeah that's why I was, I was telling yeah. you we're, we're, we're going full circle. Yeah, um, because, yeah, that that's how I feel. Like, that's how I work now. And I even realized, like, even single camera setups don't work for me. I need multiple cameras running. <laughs> <laughs> like you know i, I don't want to miss a thing i you know? demand and, uh, multiple cameras everybody <laughs> yeah and like uh also because uh uh, uh i i have this uh issue with technology where it con- continuously fails on me you know it's just uh, i guess my luck um like actually the last shoot i did um that's what happened like the camera where that was free floating where i was just like shooting random interstitials and stuff the the memory card got corrupted so none of that footage exists right. <laughs> it's gone um but yeah that's just how i know i'm like okay at least i still have the main camera shooting and you know i got like the backup to that so minimum i need three cameras yeah. you know, running at the same time and also the beauty of that you know especially when you you delve into fiction is that you don't need to do an uh i mean it limits the number of takes because I've never gotten that, and I guess that that hope that comes from another school of filmmaking, that precision of like 
shooting take after take until no. you feel like you've gotten no. it right. No, not you know the not yeah Fincher style, <laughs> and I mean that's also Brisson's style too. Um, but yeah, like I, I I really feel like that's how I make my films is I find it in the edit and. I mean, it, it's been a while since I've actually finished something, but I am working on something right now. And I feel like me vocalizing it right now, manifesting it is like a reminder for me to finish it. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I just, you know, like I don't like my, my wife goes through this. My wife is a writer. She writes novels and, you know, she's written many and she gets she gets this thing. It's this like defeat complex where she talks about, well, mm. I'm not writing something right now. I'm like, but you're a fucking writer. You have written. You are writing. You will write. It's like whatever publishing means, whatever the finished product means, it's like it does not take away from the fucking identification. This is what you do. This is what your skill is. It's like at least allow you like reveal in that for a little bit. Have the confidence of calling yourself this without immediately denigrating saying I'm not doing it at the moment yeah. that I'm talking to this person. I feel like that's because uh, I've, I've had that happen to me too. Like I, I feel that's definitely the New York effect yeah. of like socializing yeah. where everybody asks, so what you do? You know? yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. It's like, well, I'm not doing it right now. So <laughs> what am I, you know? And like, yeah. I, I met so many people in flux while I was there where it was like, there was just something holding them back. And I always just thought, you know, it's like, just sit down and write, like do it. But then I, I understand it now because I, I guess I come from that perspective of like writer's block is basically just you being afraid to write shit. Sure. You know? yeah. <laughs> Instead of like you can't write, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, it's just that fear. I mean um, I, I do this fucking essay series that I publish, you know, semi annually on YouTube and the thing is it's like I Take the time to do it correctly. I mentioned the uh, David Warner episode. It's like I'm working on something now that I'm I'm on the verge of closing. And yep. uh, it was as, as fearsome as anything I've ever worked on because this is the first thing that I actually interviewed, sit down for um, like 75 minutes with a Dutch filmmaker who I got acquainted with here, his work. And I was inclined to look him up and talk to him to do an uh, English language piece on him because I guarantee you very few American audience or at least English speaking audiences have seen his work. And I wanted to do a video the way I know how to do on his work because his stuff is completely in Dutch. It has been shot inside the borders of Holland. And um, it was a big responsibility. I signed up for it. I was loath to do the interview, even though I kept asking him. I hated the fact that it was coming. I dreaded it. I didn't get any sleep the night before because I felt like a fraud. He's also a very crust, crusty, curmudgeonly guy. I did sure. the inter- I did the interview. I'm, I'm glad that my friend Matthias was there to help me out as sort of a translator. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, then it came time to write a script and to do this thing. And it's like, and I'm going to be fucking happy with it when it's finally finished because of all the dread that went into making it happen. And that's, it's nothing. I'm just describing a a thing that I do by myself, jerking off on my own computer, (laughs) much less, much less involving other people. That is a whole, that's a bigger belly. That's a bigger. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, that's the pressure also for me is that, you know, I had these actors work with me for years you know, on this project and like, you know, I, I feel that responsibility to ha- to have something done, you know, to, 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 to show to them. But yeah, I, I totally understand that. And I, I don't know, I, I think one method though that's helped me in terms of like organization is that two minute rule. You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not. Please tell us uh, all. Okay. So <laughs> the two minute rule is basically you just do the first two minutes of whatever thing you're supposed oh. to do. So you just get started. You know, and then after you're done with that first two minutes, it's your option whether to continue or not. And most people do, 
you know, because you're you're already there. You know, you've sat in front of the computer, you've opened up the project, you've done a few cuts here and there, you know. And um the the thing that I, I kind of like to pair with it using another method is um uh Haruki Murakami, another callback, uh writing style, which is what he said was he writes just enough for the day that he feels like he wants to write more. So he cuts okay. it off. Yeah. Um, so coitus interruptus. Yeah, uh, <laughs> leave him wanting yeah. more. I hear. Yeah, yeah, and then so he comes back the next day and he still has more to say and more to write, and yeah, it's just fascinating to me because also you know I I also obviously write and it, it's it's a weird kind of paradox that it's the basis for my work, but at the same time like I don't like words in my work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, you've seen my work, Bill. Like yeah. a lot of them are wordless. You no, know, it's, it's, it's impressionistic. Silent. Yeah, uh, but, but you you do need words to begin to grasp and to describe what the wordless part of it is going to be. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you know, it it it, it bridges the gap with actors too, because then they they at least have some idea of where it's going. <laughs> yeah. And um and the whole thing with it is that uh, yeah, which I feel very fortunate about with my, I guess, approach to writing, being around other writers and having studied literature is that I don't put that pressure on myself to write. Like, I know that it's it's something that builds up in me and then it just flows out. Like, that's what happens. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be days, weeks without writing and then all of a sudden, like, I'll have, like, you know, a binge of three days of nonstop writing. And uh, I understand that about myself. So when I'm in those in-between phases, it's also actually helped me with consuming media, actually, in a way where it's like, I understand that like, oh, this is my time to be open and like accept things and watch things. And then there's a time where it's like, okay, I can't be watching anything right now. I got to be working on my own shit and like kind of closing that out. And then, you know, I just go in those repeated cycles. Well, you, you know. don't. You do have to practice at watching media. That all that I think it's true, and that it, it's not just like what you watch, but it's it's when and and the way in which you uh, eat it is all very instructive along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I as much as I I kind of um, uh, resent the term content, and you know, obviously there's an ongoing argument about content versus art and whatever all that bullshit is. Um, you know the the food um analogy is apt i i really do feel like you need that that balance cuz i even heard like henry rollins had that food analogy with his record listening that you know that he says like most of the week is his like uh his healthy protein listening yeah. and then you know the the weekend is his junk food listening you know <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> binging on like records he's already familiar with that Dude, he likes just banging this out this is hilarious you know? because in between watching uh away with words um i it's funny because i'm going on a, a trip a short trip for a couple of days to lithuania of all places oh nice and yeah i don't know much about it it's a baltic state i get it but um, I happened to find a movie recently uh, about the uh, drive to independence after the Soviet, you know, the, the wall fell, the effect of the, Rome, the Russian Soviet Union and whatnot. Anyway, it was this movie I found. It's a four hour long documentary, almost in the Wiseman style, about the uh, drive for uh, Lithuanian independence out of Vilnius. I mean, it's all based on archival footage and some Is modern... it um, Karol Vacek? Did he make that? No, 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 no it's, it's a different. It's not guy, one of those yeah. guys. Yeah, I, oh, I know okay. very, very few Lithuanian filmmakers. It's not one of okay. those guys. Anyway, uh, he, so, well, he's Czech, but he makes like oh, okay. what you described. He makes those type of documentaries. Oh shit! He passed away in 2020. Oh, <laughs> I just man, looked same. him up. Yeah, see, don't, yeah don't, he's another guy I've been. Me- yeah, I've been meaning to get into. Yeah, well, Carol just, my, my point is, is that this was in the very 
you know, broadest sense of the word, this was a homework movie. This was something that I was doing as research. Granted, you know, Lithuania is an old country, but uh, I knew that my host, who uh, was inviting me to spend some time with her family, would appreciate it if I knew who one of the sort of founding fathers of post-Soviet Lithuania was. But it was a four-hour-long, very long, decompressed, with a lot of parliamentary features, uh, yeah, oh that that clearly was the the uh, that was the fiber and the uh, the raw mm. the, the the brown rice and the the whole mm. oats of the whole thing for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's wild. All right, so I think uh, yeah we've kind of exhausted the discussion. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I I just want to ask one last question, yes. um, which is uh, I think we're going to be starting this now. Uh, with every movie that we discuss um, uh, on every episode. And it, the question is, is this a keeper? Is this a keeper? I'm going to say no. I have no problem yeah. saying that. It's not a keeper mm -hmm. for me. Uh, and I'd have to find the correct person that this is a keeper for. Uh, if this leads you to other Hong Kong film from uh, pre-handover uh, pre um, epoch filmmaking, or hell, even... Chinese language filmmaking, like some of my favorite stuff coming out of the mainland, like um, Farewell My Concubine or, or mm. any of that great Chen stuff. Kage. Yeah. Yeah, that you can't possibly make today. Actually, or mm. fuck, if you go something like Ash's Purest White or mm. um, Christ. Yeah, he's... He's was, one of the few, Jajanka. Yeah, yeah, or or yeah. or one of my one of my favorite films two years ago was Wild Goose Lake, which nobody has seen. Ooh. Oh yeah, I'm... fucking great. Okay, I'll have to check that out. To put yeah. that on the list. There's some stuff uh, out there, but I mean, it's again, I know everybody's like poorly. Well, not everybody, but there's. I'm saying there's a there's a big dearth because you know I. It's easy even for me as an eater of film to get stuck into thinking. Well, you know what these guys these days, Chen Kage is doing things like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wuxia, uh, uh, hero narratives that are propaganda. Right. And that's true. They are. But there are guys who are still taking risks uh, for stuff that aren't really, you know, loved by the Communist Party that show you the back end of China in the way that it might otherwise be. Uh, some real great anti-hero narratives and some real great grimy crime stuff that makes you feel like, oh, they're reinventing film somewhere in Hubei or, you know, in the, out in the outward provinces. Uh, right. That could be the best thing to me is if you sort of discover not Beijing and state related Chinese stuff, but like real deep, you know, hinterlands, mainland stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of ironic, too, that uh, what really changed everything, like a major flashpoint in Chinese cinema, um, other than the the handover, was uh, the um, when the Beijing Film Festival got seized. Oh, um shit. Yeah, because digital was such a boom for Chinese cinema yeah. uh, because it allowed them to shoot without permits. You know, like, you know, now we're talking like permits. Yeah, you have to have a permit. Like they can't you can't make a movie that isn't sanctioned by the state. Mm -hmm. Like um, so. Uh, so they were able to do that, you know, and obviously, you know, um, they're shooting in like towns outside of the, the, the big cities. So, you know, there's nobody watching. Um, and obviously, you know, there's also a sense of community of like people wanting to be part of a movie yeah. and participating and, you know, talking about like non-actors, they've like discovered all these people, these gems, you know, in, out in the provinces. It makes me think of, um, you know, that, that opening like, uh, um, screed in, <laughs> in social network where he's bringing up like, uh, do you know how many people in China have genius IQs? Right. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. how many people in China have, uh, you know, genuine acting talent and natural presence. Like they've they've been discovered because of this. But then, yeah, when they seized, 
you know, those movies, you know, they, they confiscated the computers and the hard drives that those movies were on. Like that changed everything because they were even like, um, they were doing the Jafar Panahi style where they were like sneaking out movies and thumb drives and cakes and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, um, but yeah, it really came to a halt after that. But, um, I highly recommend that period of Chinese cinema, like I would say early two thousands, like until, um, 2012, I want to say like was an incredible period. It was so fruitful. Um, I mean, I'll mention one film that I really love. is still a personal favorite of mine. And actually, if you look it up, it's it's by this filmmaker, Li Ning. Um, and it's called Tape. And it's a very personal project of his. It's a documentary about him, like, trying to do these modern dance pieces that nobody gives a shit about. And <laughs> he just keeps performing it. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, like, basically, um, uh, he, he it ends with him, like, realizing that uh, he's got to find something else to do <laughs> um but yeah it was a crazy um uh period and um yeah it, it's worth seeking out and if you look it up actually i wrote a review for it so it's worth checking out uh i'm gonna answer that question too about it being a keeper and i will also say no i don't think it's a keeper <laughs> uh, <laughs> i agree with you because um for me like this is i guess as my you know, I'm I'm aging, and uh, you know, like I, I'm glad to keep like the the canon open, you know, not to have a closed canon. But at the same time, you know, my criteria has changed over time too, where it's like I'm. It, it's almost a paradox in a way that I'm more open with like flaws, and I don't need this thing to be fucking perfect, you know. Um, but at the same time, like I need it to be something I want to go back to. You know, that's the value of movies to me now is like, I want to be able to like own it on Blu-ray and like put it on whenever I feel like it. And I don't feel like this film is, is that even though, yeah, I understand like those points you brought up about, yeah, it's, it's value that it could be a gateway for certain people to discover other things. Um, you know, maybe even just go through the work of Wong Kar Wai and Chris Doyle. And you have like an incredible journey ahead of you with that, you know? So uh, it it can act as a gateway, but yeah, I don't think it's a keeper. I mean, it's it's far more likely that what you're going to do is come to this from Wong Kar Wai and Chris Doyle. Yeah, and uh, you know, also considering how obscure it is, like you know, we really had to dig to find it. So, um, yeah, there's that. Um, okay, so uh, the last thing, Bill, if you could just share with us, where do you want people to find you online? I am on Twitter, at William Scurry. Uh, my podcast is, uh, I don't get it, at Noen Bill Show. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm always on Twitter. I'm the kind of guy you want to, uh, you know, just there all the time, yes. just popping off, doing whatever. <laughs> and half, and half. definitely check out um, An Evening with James and Bill. Oh, yeah, yeah. YouTube. I'm Fantastic very proud of that one. It was it was a big yeah. heave. We did a lot of labor. Uh, the, the cut of that took a long time. But, yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. All right. Well, thanks again, Bill, for coming on. Uh, we made it, and I think, uh, yeah, it was like two and a half. So you're you're under the average of our episodes because we're usually <laughs> around three. So we yes. we 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 delivered um, under time and under budget. <laughs> and we're only sixty minutes longer than the actual movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's my goal. Is like every show is longer than the actual movie itself. It has so, to be. There's no yeah. option. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we are planning to do uh, commentaries in the near future, so hopefully uh, there's that. And um, yeah, we'd have to stick to the length of the movies, obviously. But um, yeah, uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at uh, Movie Food Pod. And um, I'm actually, I started a new handle. I don't know if you know this, Bill, because I, I feel like I'm shadow banned on Twitter. But I started a new handle as an experiment just to see. And I still think I'm shadow banned. <laughs> so um, uh, my um, my new handle is at Carlo Kino, except that the Carlo is spelled with a K and Kino as well. Um, K-I-N-O. Um, so... Uh, yeah, because Carlo with the C was already taken, so that's the reason why I have that. But oh, yeah, now um, I'm following it. I'm over there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I let everybody know that it's not an imposter. It's actually me, and uh, I'm more active on there. I've been posting more, like you know, uh, shit posting and also um, sharing photographs, which is leading to a Patreon that I'll, I'll eventually launch and I'll announce that. And um, yeah, we're we're also on Patreon, and we're grateful for your um, your monthly subs. We hope that you're getting your money's worth. That's also part of the reason why I think I love having a long episode because I feel like, you know, people can also break it down into a couple of episodes, you know, if they wanted to. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for our loyal listeners and everybody else who's um, who's coming on board and discovering us for the first time. Thank you. And Bill, I want to thank you again. And we'd love to have you back, especially to discuss Edward Yang and uh, Los Angeles plays itself. Oh, that sounds like a date. I love it. I'm going to do both of those things. I'm happy to be there. Mm-hmm.